Hey everybody, welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Man, uh, I am still with a stack of things from San Diego because uh, since the con, news keeps breaking. And uh, in fact, our next two Word Balloons, uh, both today's episode and tomorrow's episode, uh, is going to reflect some uh, recent news. So I hope you have a chance to uh, listen to it and, uh, and react because uh, I, I uh, had every intention of just having a very nice conversation today with uh, Robert Meyer Burnett. You know, Bob, uh, we, we spoke last uh, summer. Uh, he uh, and his uh, buddy Alex Winter have made the fan film uh, Star Trek Prelude to Axanar, which is available on YouTube. Uh, they crowdfunded $1.2 million to make a full-fledged Axanar movie. Paramount and CBS back in December uh, served them with a lawsuit, and uh, that is still pending litigation. It's going back and forth. And uh, since then, um, the new Star Trek movie came out, Star Trek Beyond, and I was all set to talk about all that and maybe a little bit about Star Trek Dis Discovery. But uh, the Television Critics Association is uh, having a big uh, seminar this week, both yesterday and today, and a lot of the networks are announcing their new shows. And uh, Brian Fuller, the showrunner for Star Trek Discovery, which is the CBS All Access show, uh, just spit out a bunch of new facts about the show. And they were fascinating. And, of course, dovetailed into some of the story ideas of Star Trek Axanar. So, it you know, just crazy timing that I was already set to talk to Rob about uh, the fan film and what's going on with the lawsuit, all that stuff. And then we get some real Star Trek news to talk about as well. In addition to that, uh, Rob is a podcaster. You might know uh, that he is one of uh, Collider's uh, podcasters for their podcast, Collider Heroes, with uh, John Schnepp and company. John, of course, the director of the uh, Death of Superman. Wasn't it the Death of Superman? The the Nick Cage uh, movie, uh, uh, the documentary about the uh, Tim Burton, Nicolas Cage Superman movie that didn't happen in the 90s. Great movie. Uh, Schnepp uh, hosts Collider Heroes, and Rob is a, uh, a contributor to that. And I'll talk a little bit about his podcasting. But in that capacity, you know, Rob uh, doesn't rest. He's uh, he's a geek like us, and he watches all the stuff. So certainly he had his thoughts on Star Trek Beyond, but also Suicide Squad. And as you'll hear in the conversation as well, um, you know, Rob is Rob's an old school geek, kind of like me. And uh, it, we can't help but notice what's happening in the world. Uh, and also... The passionate uh, talk that happens on social media about uh, geek culture and films and television and uh, um, just how, uh, meanwhile, <laughs> the world's going to, the, to hell in a handbasket. I mean, God, even at that Star Trek press conference, if you heard a recent Word Balloon episode, um, God, even the Star Trek producers of Star Trek uh, Discovery couldn't help but mention. And I think even Jerry Ryan herself is like, this is a really messed up world right now. And, uh, you know, we dovetail it back into Star Trek, but there are occasions where, you know, Rob is just pointing out the obvious of how, you know, the world is really facing some serious ecological problems and politics seems to get in the way. And it's really frustrating. So I, 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 I let Rob uh, spin about that and I can't disagree with him. Uh, some might who listen to the show and I apologize if politics gets in the way. But, you know, it's it's just it's out there. And unfortunately, it kind of does. Uh, you know, it, it, you can't help but notice that people are more happy to get angry about Captain America and Hell Hydra than than they are about you know um, clean water in in Michigan or really a lot of other states in the country and uh, you know global warming and and all the big issues and stuff. It's 
it's very frustrating. Zika, uh, which is one thing that obviously Rob brings up. I mean, it's it's just nuts. So anyway, uh, it's a fun conversation. So it's not as heavy as it sounds. Uh, it's great Trek talk. And I can't help. I mean, I really liked Star Trek Beyond. I want I want to say that in the first place because I really did. I thought found it very entertaining. Rob being the Uber Trek expert and guy who constantly thinks about Trek, I can't disagree with the things that he didn't like about the movie. And I think ultimately um, he was sort of disappointed. And I think it really just speaks for that kind of frustration with J.J. Uh, Abrams and what is now called the Kelvin Universe stories. Um, and, and, and again, we kind of addressed that quote that Chris Pine even made just right before the movie came out that as much as uh, our, us hardcore Trek fans want smart sci-fi along with our Star Trek, that a, a mainstream audience uh, you know, doesn't want that. And I, again, I, I have to disagree. Um, and, and Rob makes the point, I think, a lot better than I do in a much more entertaining way. So lots of fun stuff to talk about today with uh, Rob Meyer Burnett. And we have a really fun Star Trek conversation, uh, one of my favorite subjects. Uh, on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, League, for your support through Patreon. Again, I am just stunned with uh, the amount of new uh, Word Balloon subscribers through Patreon. Thank you so much. It really does mean a lot. And uh, it does help pay for the show and, and, and pay for me to go to conventions and make more connections and stuff. And as I always say, because I want this clear, Word Balloon is free, but if you want to help the cause... And think that the content that I give you every month is, you know, worth the equivalent of your favorite comic books and stuff. Can you spare a dollar or two and subscribe to Word Balloon? If you can, it's okay. It's a free product. But if you can't help the cause, you're really helping out. And I, and I do appreciate it. And you're showing that my content means something. So, so thank you, as always. League of Word Balloon listeners, if you, you want more information, go to wordballoon.com. There's a tab right there and uh, an ad for Patreon. If you click on one of those, you'll, you'll get to the videos that I have made. Uh, talking about why I'm uh, taking funds. I'm not the only podcast that does this. I'm not the only comic book podcast that does this or comic book content provider. So, uh, yeah, you know, thanks. I, re I really do appreciate it, League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much for your support. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. And while we're talking about Star Trek, let's take a look at uh, some of the uh, maybe IDW product that InStock Trades uh, gives you uh, at a reduced price. So you can get things like Star Trek, Countdown to Darkness, the trade paperback that was the prequel to J.J. Uh, Abrams' uh, first 2009 movie. Excellent book. Robert Orsi and Mike Johnson, the co-writers. Orsi, of course, one of the producers and uh, the screenwriter of J.J. Uh, Abrams' Star Trek. Dave Messina is the artist. It's 30% uh, off, and it kind of explains Spock's Romulan story before uh, we get to the movie. So 30% off, it's just $12.59. You can get the Star Trek classic movie omnibus trade paperback. Uh, that features writing from Marv Wolfman, Peter David, Andy Schmidt, uh, artists like Dave Cockrum, Klaus Janssen, Tom Sutton, uh, a whole lot more. Uh, this is, uh, of course, our, our buddy Gordon Purcell among them, and an excellent Star Trek artist, I might add. 30% off, $17.49. You can get uh, the Next Generation Star Trek book, The Space Between, uh, written by Dave Tishman. And uh, Casey Mahoney is the artist. It's 30% off. It's $13.99. You can get the Next Generation Omnibus featuring Tishman, Scott Tipton, David Tipton, Xander Cannon, uh, Dave Messina, Gordon Purcell again. Great stuff. 30% off. 
and it is uh, 30%, uh, or pardon me, it's $20.99. I'm repeating myself, for God's sake. Star Trek Archives, Volume 4, Deep Space Nine trade paperback. Mike Barr is the writer. This is uh, going back to uh, some earlier uh, Star Trek Deep, Deep Space Nine stuff. From Gordon Purcell and Rob David and Lorraine Haynes, among the artists, uh, 50% off, $9.99. There are pages of Star Trek uh, product that are available to you at reduced prices at InStockTrades.com. And that's just Star Trek. I mean, think about all the other things that are available to you as well. Great books at great prices. Check it out for yourself, InStockTrades.com. All right. Man, it's been a year, and uh, I really expected to see him at San Diego, but as we both say, we were kind of busy. But it's uh, a thrill to have uh, Robert Meyer Burnett, the wonderful director of uh, Free Enterprise back in 1999, uh, the guy who... uh, did the editing on uh, Star Trek Prelude to Axanar, and he was uh, the director, would have been the director for the full-length Axanar movie, uh, which gives him uh, a certain point of view. I have to confess, I get the bigger uh, discussion about, look, this is uh, CBS property, this is Paramount property, they have the right to tell someone, cease and desist, you are infringing on our copyright. I get that. I also know that for a fact, for over 40 years, there have been Star Trek fan films. Uh, there are ones that uh, come close to the level of sophistication that um, Rob and Alex Winter and company were able to achieve with Prelude to Axanar. It gave us a good idea of what to expect in the full Axanar movie. Uh, we mention other uh, Star Trek fan pro- uh, projects. James Cauley, who uh, gets uh, named in uh, this conversation, he's uh, been the guy that's been doing the uh, supposed fourth season of Star Trek, uh, Star Trek Continues. And, uh, you know, I'm getting that mixed up with uh, Star Trek Phase 2 or far- Star Trek Phase 4. If you look on YouTube, you will find episodes by uh, by Colley and others that um, are incredible in terms of the, the level of scale and recreating the Enterprise. Uh, even the acting, I think, is very good, and the writing, I think, is up to Star Trek standards. Um, those people weren't sued, only, only Axanar, probably because it made a million point two in crowdfunding. I also can't help but notice that um, Star Trek uh, Renegades, which was made by uh, Tim Russ, who played Tuvok on uh, a Voyager, also had um, you know Walter Koenig, uh, Chekhov, uh, Richard Kiley, I want to say is the name, of uh, Admiral Paris. Um, he makes an appearance in it. Icheb. Uh, the actor who played Icheb, the uh, Borg kid that gets rescued by Voyager, is in the film. Uh, there's a lot of Star Trek people in uh, Star Trek Renegades. It uh, made over over six figures in funding and had a very major film release and a premiere. It's out there also on YouTube. It's very odd that CBS and Paramount were able to come to terms with them for future projects and and work out a negotiation uh, unlike Axanar, and I think that's odd. And again, I'm sure that there are people that are listening right now that are just like, hey, dumbass, you know, again, it's CBS's and Paramount's. They can do whatever the hell they want. It just seems like they're cherry-picking who they're suing, and that's where I have a problem with um, that, uh, that, that choice by, uh, by CBS and Paramount. I think there are uh, cases where a comic book creator is only going to make a certain amount of money from his creations and I think has every right to protect them. Um, I think that uh, Star Trek and, and CBS and Paramount um, literally make billions of dollars, and I don't think that a fan film as good as uh, and as sophisticated as what they made is really going to hurt them in any way. Again, this is my opinion. 
I know other people feel differently. So you might not hear Rob challenged on on things that you as a listener might challenge him on. And it's simply because I I uh, I, I kind of sympathize with the uh, with Rob and Alex because frankly I enjoyed the movie. I really wanted to see them uh, make their movie and continue to make other things. Sandy Cholera, an excellent uh, filmmaker and uh, special effects person, made that Batman Dead End uh, fan film from a few years ago that was about 15 minutes long, but it featured Batman and the Predator and Alien, uh, you know, the Joker as well. Walter Koenig's son, in fact, played the Joker, the kid who played uh, Boner. That got uh, growing pains uh, back in the day, and it was a pretty good Joker, actually. Um you know, nobody, nobody sued Sandy Cholera. And again, I mean, these fan films are, are not only made because of the love of the characters, but also to prove, hey, I can do this on a big Hollywood scale. And it's kind of made to be a calling card. They're not they're not making money from it, per se, in terms of selling it to an audience. But, um, you know, yeah, the, suddenly crowdfunding has made things different. And, and now people, as opposed to using their own money to make these or private, you know, one on one donations, you know, crowdfunding is making this stuff happen. So it's a new world, and it's a new wrinkle. Um, Richard Hatch, I think, spoke about it very eloquently. Uh, Apollo from the original Battlestar Galactica and Tom Zarek from the uh, Ron Moore uh, reboot of uh, Battlestar Galactica. And he said, you know, it's, it's just a changing world. And obviously he's on Alex Peter and, and Rob Burnett's side as well because he's part of Star Trek Axanar. He, Axanar. he plays the Klingon. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a different world, and I, and I think that... You know, the there are uh, franchises that understand and, and appreciate their relationship with their fans. And then there are those that are very, you know, hey, this is our thing and we can we can do what we want. I get it. I just disagree. So I just wanted to put all that out there before we start our conversation. But uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, as always. Uh, happy to re uh, talk with Rob Burnett. Um, Ten minutes into the conversation, the Internet got wonky. So I had to switch and call Rob on phone. And you'll hear it because I announce it right in the middle of our discussion. But it uh, doesn't take away from the conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, here's Rob Meyer Burnett on Word Balloon. Cannot be happier to have uh, Robert Meyer Burnett back on Word Balloon. We had such a great talk last year, and, uh, man, every time something has happened with Axanar, I've wanted to have you back on. I'm kind of glad we waited until now because literally as we're recording, within hours, there's there's new news about uh, Star Trek Discovery, the CBS on uh, all access uh, program coming up. But anyway, Rob, hello. That's hello. a long intro. So. Hey, it's, <laughs> no, it's it's great to be back here. I mean, we had such a rollicking good time the last time we talked a year ago. <laughs> and um, I... yeah, and certainly a lot has happened in uh, the world of Axanar. Yes. And I want to get to that. But first, I, I am interested in your thoughts on this uh, news about uh, Star Trek Discovery. Well, um, you know, I, yeah, well, I, I mean, you, you want you want to do the details or do you want, you know, I've got the story up if we need it. Well, sure. I mean, they just announced, obviously, they, they announced back in November that they were going to make a new Star Trek television series. And it was going to be the pilot would appear on CBS and then the rest of the show would be available on the new CBS app, which is called yes. CBS All Access. And it's going to be yep. it's a six dollar a month subscription. Now, around the rest of the world, the new Star Trek series is available, is going to be available on Netflix, but not <laughs> in North America. Yep. And uh, so that's a little odd. The, the only way we can see it is to pay $6 a month to get the CBS <laughs> All Access app, which I suspect won't last that long. 
And uh, Les Moonves has announced that because of the Netflix deal, that the series is already in uh, the black. It's already profitable. Interesting. Now, what we know of the series so far is it's going to be a serialized story. So it's going to be one story per season, and there'll be 13 episodes per season. Mm-hmm. And they announced today, Brian Fuller, who is the showrunner, uh, the creator of the show, who famously reinvented Hannibal Lecter in the three-season <laughs> run of Hannibal, which I adored. Oh, yeah, I, great show. I know Brian Fuller. He's a great guy, and he has famously said that the only reason he became a writer was to become a Star Trek writer. And he first uh, had his story credits on Deep Space Nine, and then he eventually became a staff writer on Star Trek Voyager. So I think the show is in good hands. Um, But they had not really announced any details about the show other than the title, Star Trek Discovery, and the fact that, interestingly, the design of the Starship Discovery is based on the Ralph McQuarrie illustrations that were done for the aborted Star Trek, the 70s Star Trek feature film, Star Trek Planet of the Titans, that director <laughs> Philip Kaufman was going to direct, and Ken Adam, famed production designer Ken Adam, who worked for Kubrick and who worked on, he designed The War Room and Doctor Strange Love, and he also worked on many of the James Bond films. Yep. He was the production designer, and Ralph McQuarrie designed uh, this new Enterprise that had... Uh, it's very interesting. It's got a big, wide, triangular body that people say <laughs> resembles a Klingon battle cruiser. But it True. was, it is based on something from Star Trek history. And I always liked yeah. the McQuarrie design. I thought it was cool. Oh God, yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. But so today, no, if only, if only with all those guys, by the way, on that film. I mean, God, the right stuff. Philip Kaufman, oh. as you see, Ken, Ken Adams' resume and McQuarrie speak for themselves. No, it was, you it, know. it was, you know, could have been an amazing, amazing uh, film. But it never got made, so they're resurrecting that design. But today at the Television Critics Association, uh, where everybody unveils their new shows, Brian Fuller, mere hours ago, uh, released details about the Star Trek series that it was not going to be about a captain. It was going to be about a female lieutenant. So we're going to see that the show is going to be set from a different perspective than we've seen before. And the time frame of the series is, as Brian Fuller said, 10 years before Kirk took command of the Enterprise, which is very interesting since that would put it smack during the time that we've already seen in Star Trek history. The Famously, the very first Star Trek pilot with Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Christopher Pike, The Cage, yep. with Majel Barrett as number one, a female second-in-command of the Enterprise, and Mr. Spock as the science officer, the new series is set during that original pilot. Now, we saw the original pilot broken up in the two-part episode, The Menagerie, from the original Star Trek series first season. Mm-hmm. So the new Star Trek series is set in a period of time that we've already seen before in Star Trek history, which is sort of interesting. Um, oh, yeah. It's also interesting <laughs> from my perspective because it's also set at the exact same time as our short fan film prelude to Axanar that you can see on yep. YouTube and 10 years after uh, the movie that we were making Axanar that was sued by Paramount yeah so I I find it very interesting that our short film prelude to Axanar which we basically made up out of whole cloth uh, the it came Axanar was briefly mentioned in two 
episodes of the original series. Uh, but we never saw it. And the inhabitants of the planet Axanar were seen in Enterprise. But our fan film Axanar was taken from a that idea, but also a Star Trek, the role-playing game supplement from the 80s. Yep. The fast role-playing game supplement, um, The Four Years' War, and then Return to Axanar. So we really fleshed out that period of time. And of course, when Prelude came out, uh, in April or in August of 2014, we famously raised $630,000 on Kickstarter to make our feature film. And we did many, many podcasts and many interviews and explained what we were doing with that Star Trek time period, which really had gone unexplored other than the cage. So mm -hmm. I find it curious that here we were, we got sued back in December and we didn't yeah. ever really know why. Uh, people said you commercialized Star Trek, and there is not a lot of validity to that. I mean, we did raise a lot of money, but we certainly did not commercialize Star Trek the way we've been accused of. And that's not really what the, the lawsuit was about, copyright violation. But I find it interesting that the new Star Trek series, uh, two years after the fact, is announced as being in the same time period that we were detailing. And the reason we kind yeah. of picked that time period was because it hadn't really been detailed before. So that was what we were trying to do, and now the new Star Trek series is covering that same ground. And Brian Fuller said today that it was going to examine a big event in Star Trek history that we had heard mentioned but never seen. Curiouser and curiouser. I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't hear that a little bit. Oh, yeah. Go on. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I guess... I'll wait and see. I, I'm really excited about the new show. But I do find the whole thing very interesting. And, you know, I worked on uh, June, back in June, a box set of the Star Trek The Next Generation Blu-rays, which I worked on for three years. I did uh, documentaries on the making of the show uh, on those Blu-rays. Very extensive. Hours and hours and hours of documentary footage. I talked to virtually everybody's that was majorly involved so yeah i had to switch the phone because uh, robert and i were having uh, internet issues so uh robert continue you were saying that uh, working on the uh the special features for uh the next generation box sets right so you know i covered for three years i basically interviewed everybody from rick berman on down the principal cast the writing staff everybody that was involved in the creation of star trek the next generation and i heard all of the pitfalls and all the challenges that were involved in creating a Star Trek TV series. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things about, I think, Star Trek on television is with the original series, and then you went ahead 100 years, and Next Generation Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager all took place concurrently. And then you went back 150 years, or 250 years, really, uh, for Enterprise and, and uh, told uh, the stories of a different period of time we, we had never seen. So uh -huh. this will be the first Star Trek TV series that is going back and covering an area of time we've previously seen established in the Star Trek universe before, which is the time of Captain Pike and when the Enterprise was originally launched yep. uh, on its initial mission where, where, you know, of course it was Captain Pike and number one and, and Spock and Dr. Boyce and, and everybody that we yeah. saw in the cage. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I, I just think that's 
like of all the choices, like I was kind of hoping that we were going to see the beginning of the 23rd century, like the dawn, the Romulan War would have ended. We would have seen the dawn of the golden era of, of exploration. That's what I was sort of hoping for. Um, so you could go back and really see things the way we've never seen them before, because now we're in an era where the Klingons, we will, we will have seen them before and we will, will be in an area of time that, that we've seen. Although I do find it interesting that the format itself, 13 episodes to tell one story. I've always thought that it was weird. Well, as I got older, I thought it was weird that if you look at original Star Trek, which I dearly love, it's my favorite. Mm -hmm. uh, when they would go, they, they would always beam down to a planet and wherever they beamed down to, they always went to the capital city and they were dealing with the heads of the world government. Every government was like governed by one dude, which which would be like, imagine if a, a starship like the Enterprise came to Earth today. And imagine if they beamed down to, oh, I don't know, some Philadelphia. You know, they beam down to Philadelphia and, and they have this adventure and they're looking around going, hey, we really need to talk to the, the heads of your planet. And they're like, well, you know, that's over in Washington, D.C. Or maybe you need to go to Moscow or someplace in Japan. Like, who would you talk to if, if aliens came to Earth right now? and they beam down to God knows where, they would have a hard time finding, I mean, maybe you could go to the United Nations and address the world, but you couldn't pull off a Star Trek episode like that. So I, I, if you take any of the great classic Star Trek episodes, like there's a great episode called The Taste of Armageddon, where it's from the first season of the original series, there are these two planets, Aminiar and Vendikar. And they've been at war for like a thousand years, but they fight their wars with computers so they don't actually have to blow anything up for real. So if your city gets hit, uh, the computer decides, and you are then reported as being dead. So you have to report to a disintegration booth. Walk into the disintegration <laughs> booth and get disintegrated. And if you don't, if you don't report back to the uh, opposing planet that you've done this, then they'll start firing for real. And of course, of course, Kirk and, and Spock are horrified by this, and they put an end to this conflict. But I'm like, you could spend 13 hours. Like, what if that was Earth, and we were we were fighting with a warring planet right now, but we have the governments of Earth today? Like, what if Kirk went to uh, Russia, and the Russians were like, no, 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 we like it the way it is, and China was like, all right, we'll put a stop to the war, and India is like, no, we like it the way it is too. Like, it would sure. be a little difficult. So I think it, it'd be a lot of fun to see a Star Trek episodes like a taste of Armageddon stretched out to 13 episodes. Sure. Well, we've got the model with what I think Marvel does with Netflix. And I oh. think, you know, cause, cause at first when they, when, when Fuller said, you know, that he wants to do kind of a, did he use the phrase novel for, you know, he, he did, he kind mm -hmm. of compared it to a novel. It reminded me obviously of Straczynski uh, and Babylon five. Absolutely. You know, and, and so, so that's kind of cool. But like I said, you know, you know, so that was my initial thought. But then again, even what you've just described feels more like a Netflix thing. Right. And, and you know, I have to say, uh, now the big thing is a Stranger Things, the Netflix series Stranger Things, which yeah, I love, absolutely. which is sort of an amalgamation of the 80s, Poltergeist and the Twilight Zone episode, Little Girl Lost and Stephen King books and all that. It was great. And I love the Marvel shows. I mean, the trailer for the new series Luke Cage dropped yesterday. Yeah, it looks that's fantastic. all set in Harlem. It looks amazing. I can't wait. Yep. Um, 
but I, you know, I, I, I love all of what I love Daredevil season one and two. And I, I really love Jessica Jones. Yep. Uh, that was a very adult look at a comic character. I thought it was fantastic. And Luke Cage. Oh, totally. Just as good. Absolutely. That, and yeah, Jessica, Jessica Jones was very Chinatown compared to the straight up action of Dare and, and action with Sopranos, I think a little bit in Daredevil. I thought, yeah, Jessica Jones really did kind of live up to that Chinatown kind of vibe. Oh, absolutely. And I, I love the fact that there's no world threatening entity in these shows, that it's really Not about Chinatown, neighborhood. I just want to say real fast, I'm a taxi driver, but and I don't mean to step on you, but I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not right, not Chinatown taxi driver. Well, yeah, so. no, no I, I, but I got what you meant. I mean, Chinatown's <laughs> still evocative of the mid-40s L.A. milieu. I mean, that's, it's totally well, like that. And I, and I yeah, think it's, yeah, it's cool to see this stuff getting made. I mean, we we truly are living in a golden age of genre television. I mean, whether oh it's Game God. of Thrones or whether it's, Outlander, or whether it's, it's man, man in the High Castle, <laughs> love that. I mean, think about it. The Man in the High Castle is an adaptation of a Philip K. Dick novel. Um, yep, which is amazing. Oh, absolutely! My God, yes, yeah. And also, uh, just got it in the mail because I don't have Hulu. Uh, Eleven Yeah, you know, I watched that, and I have to say, I was a bit disappointed. I thought that sh- was a little flat. Interesting. Um, okay. I mean, I liked the book quite a bit, but I think the stuff I liked most in the book was nothing to do with Lee Harvey Oswald. Okay. And a lot of his life back in that period was obviously it's not it's it wasn't exactly the stuff of great television drama, so a lot of it was uh, uh, curtailed or, or truncated. So, okay. but but it's still it's still okay. I mean, I thought it was beautifully made. James Franco was great. But, yeah. Well, I'm a sucker for alternate uh, timeline stuff, so that's why I kind of get And same with Man in the High Castle, you know. Yeah, I mean, I was really looking. There's, I don't want to ruin it for you, but I, there, was, there was an alternate timeline component to uh, the King book that wasn't really explored in the series either. Oh, and wow. I was hoping they would get into it more, but they really didn't. And is it so, just the one season, or is it uh, is it continuing? What's that? I'm sorry. Is it a finite series, or is it continuing? Oh no! It's I mean, finite. I know it's just the one novel, so it is a finite series. It okay. is a finite series. Yeah, it's 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 over. And um, okay, cool. All right. But there's a that's lot good. of it that's really good. I mean, I I would highly recommend watching it. Okay. But anyway, we're back to back to Trek and and what we know right now about the the new show. I thought I had heard the rumors that maybe it would be taking place after the original series and before Next Generation. Right. I mean, they had said that there was all kinds of of things swirling around about the show. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, find it, I find it interesting in that they... The, one of the... Well, the writers always pointed out to me that Star Trek ended up hamstrung by its own mythology. That they would come up with stories they wanted to do and the writers would, somebody would say, oh, well, we already dealt with that, or we found out that in this episode you couldn't do that, or this contradicts this thing. So I think by going back in time, I think, you know, there's, a, there's enough stories to tell that we haven't seen before, but I'm really hoping that it creates its own mythology, that it'll, it'll, it'll do something new. And, you know, they've talked about, Brian Fuller mentioned today that 
they're going to add a, an LGBT character, that the main uh-huh. character is going to be female. And uh, what, I, what I thought was really, uh, like, especially with Voyager, Voyager was sort of a copy of a copy of a copy. Agreed. So you had all of these Star Trek tropes that were being reexamined, like instead of a half Vulcan, half human, or Data, you had a female half Klingon, half human. Um, and I, I hope that we get away from some of those Star Trek tropes and see some some new characters. And we base, I mean, Star Trek is essentially uh, a vision of the future that's 50 years old. And I was kind of hoping they would start from scratch and deal with if, if, if used today as a baseline for where our technology might wind up in 300 years. And we're going to have things like transhumanism, the singularity and AI, yep. um, what's going to happen when our lifespan is, is significantly extended. And, and what is it, what is virtual reality going to mean to us? Um, but that is essentially not to be, we're still going to be locked in. Star Trek is essentially locked into its 50-year-old sort of quaint vision of what the future would be like. I mean, and as much as I love it, it's it's almost a little antiquated. And I really, <laughs> I, 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 I hate to say it, I just don't know, as we progress as a species, the, the one thing about Star Trek that has always been interesting for me, you know, I started watching it as a child, as a small child. Sure, me too. And then Absolutely. there was the animated series, Yep. Then, then when I was 12 years old, Star Trek The Motion Picture opened, and Star Trek The Motion Picture showed our characters older and wiser, and then the Star Trek movies, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek Three, Star Trek Four, all the way through Star Trek Six, dealt with our principal characters aging into yep. middle age and beyond and dealing with their own mortality. And then as I went to college, Star Trek The Next Generation happened. And so throughout literally my entire life, Star Trek has changed and evolved as I have. Yes, so and moved forward. This, you know, yeah, it's been this constant companion um, in my life. Right. And it's interesting that now Star Trek has gone backwards. We first had Star Trek <laughs> Enterprise. You know, we had Star Trek Enterprise, yeah. which went back in the Federation. And then the J.J. Abrams sure. movies were going back and they were retelling the stories of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, but they were doing it in such a way, one of the great things about Star Trek, at least for me, was it showed not just an optimistic vision of the future, but it also showed humanity as the best it can be. The people on the Enterprise were the best there were at their jobs. Mm-hmm. They, they, they represented excellence. They represented the most highly educated and highly competent people in the universe, you know, human, humanity at least. And, and now, great. if you look you at the J.J. Abrams, What's, uh, yeah, and if you look at the J.J. Yeah, Abrams yeah, movies... Go on, yeah. Well, with the J.J. Abrams movies, everyone's kind of a douche. You know, <laughs> uh, Kirk, Kirk is this, you know, you, know, you, you look at... He, he, he's, kind, he's kind of an asshole in Star Trek 09. <laughs> and, and, and Star Trek Beyond Now opens with him going, well... You know, we're three years into our five-year mission. I mean, everyone's kind of bored. Space is vast, and in, so I don't know how much good we can really do out here anyway. It's killing me. And That's I'm like, awesome. I don't. I'm like, I don't like that. Who, who is this guy? I don't want to follow him. 
you know, and Spock in Star Trek 09 gets mad and he throws Kirk off the ship and maroons him on a planet. It's like nobody's working together. And I don't see uh, Uhura going on away missions to the Klingon homeworld. And Star Trek Beyond deals with the, the end of their relationship. Spock and Uhura break up. I'm like, what does this have to do with Star Trek? I, I don't... I, I, this is not this is not good, and that's why I'll tell you, Star Trek Beyond is going to make $100 million less at the domestic box office, $75 million less than the last Star Trek movie, because it's not giving people what Star Trek at its core was all about, which is showing mankind at its very best. We somehow are now living in an era where science, where intellectualism, where exceptionalism is no longer valued. It's like, oh, everybody's special. We don't, you know, let me give you a trigger warning because if you, if you, if I say something to you that might be, might trigger an unpleasant memory, I mean, I wouldn't want to do that. (laughs) You know, and I I have to tell you, we are, we are turning into a society of, of, of people that are constantly angry and outraged about the smallest things the smallest microaggressions, micro-injustices. I mean, we we are, the future is heading at us rapidly, and we are no longer fit to live in it. (laughs) And uh, we've we've got to man up, because I'm a, or woman up, or species up. We've got to human up. up. I would agree. Go on. And that shouldn't offend anybody. Go on. (laughs) Well, I'm just like, you know, you look at, if you're a Trump supporter, I'll come out and say this. <laughs> uh, like I, the, the great party of Lincoln, you know, the, the, there have yes. been incredible Republican presidents and sure. the Republican Party. But if you look at, at Donald Trump, does he represent the best that America has to offer? If you really look at him and look at his business practices, and you wouldn't hire the guy to work for you, much less be your president. Yep, and and I I don't understand where uh, why America has become so regressive. Why don't we demand more excellence and more intelligence? Go back and watch any speech Kennedy gave in the sixties. Go back and watch. You know, I think there's enough people. We're far enough along that if you disliked Kennedy or liked him. You can't deny the man could give a speech. And when he gave a speech, he sounds a thousand years away from Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's important. I don't care if a candidate is a Republican or a Democrat. I want a candidate that represents human and American excellence. And that's what Star Trek was about. It was about human excellence. And even Star Trek isn't about that anymore. Yeah, I was disappointed when I read Chris Pine's quote that, you know, um, Star Trek can't be smart anymore, basically to that effect. And I know I'm misquoting him, but basically no, saying, that's, yeah, that's, that's exactly what he said. Yeah. And, and I'm like, we're now living in a world where we're excusing why things aren't smart anymore? Yeah, that's not cool. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't, I really don't understand where that idea comes from. I mean, is this... Is this the result of every kid gets a trophy? Every kid is your special flower? I, 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 I that's you. not true. I, and look, we need, to be, we need to be led by strong, intelligent people 
that are going to brazenly grab a hold of like, you know what, whether climate change is real or not, whether you believe it or not, isn't it better that we not pump crap into the environment? Isn't it better that why are we, I understand coal is a venerable old business and uh, America has a long history of employing people using coal. Coal burns dirty. It pollutes the atmosphere. As our population gets bigger, we can't afford, like you don't leave 10% of your kitchen dirty. I mean, after a dinner party, you don't clean like 85% of it up and leave a bunch of dirty dishes over here. That's okay. Why is it okay that we pollute our environment? Like, why is that okay? Why is that ever okay? Honestly, if that is legit when you think about Star Trek's history and how it has always been tied to the concerns of the 60s, of the ecology. And, you know, I mean, that's the thing. It did represent all of the kind of, you know, liberal easy stuff. Although, you know, Nixon did, you know, bring in Earth Day. You know, it's very even, – even the Republicans of the era were eco- ecologically conscious and well, concerned because, about because the, the environment Republicans, stuff. Look, I think I think what's been lost is is you know Republicans and Democrats they're not stupid based on their party affiliations. Of course, you know, and if you look at the the Republican platform of demanding smaller government and demanding more personal responsibility, I don't uh, I disagree with that. But if you look at what happened this week with our own Congress, here we have a potential disastrous problem with the Zika virus. The Zika virus has, is now being – it's found in Florida. It's found in Texas. Oh, our Congress, in Illinois. Yeah. Our con- Congress could not agree on how to deal with Zika. The Republicans were actually putting in uh, caveats that dealt with Planned Parenthood sure. in order to deal with the Zika virus, and they ended up not coming to terms or, or, or coming up with a plan or, or adding any kind of emergency expenditures to combat this potentially huge health problem and they went away they uh, while they are yes. in recess they're not coming back until september yep. so if there's a massive zika outbreak in florida or in texas now in the next month remember our republican congress did not approve any spending because they were more concerned with planned parenthood and abortion which has yep. nothing to do with the out a viral outbreak on our coast I, I or on our border. This <laughs> is the problem. This is the problem I have with with the way uh, we are now running our government, and they're not dealing with like imagine imagine if a wildfire broke out in in Florida or or Texas, and Congress needed to approve more firefighters and more equipment to fight this fire, and they they went away because they said, you know what, we're only going to give you money if you allow. Planned Parenthood to be defunded. Yeah. Well, yeah. we've got a fire burning right now, and you're going to make this about some ideological difference or some biblical uh, difference that you have, and you're not going to deal with the fire that's burning right now, and you're going to go away in recess? I mean, I don't understand why that's become how our government does business. We'll yeah, help you with this problem, cool. but we've got to put this other thing in there. I mean, yep. that's not – it just seems odd to me. The lesson of Star Trek is you get the best people – you get your, the best minds 
that you have. You put them all together and you allow them to do their job. They go out, they surmount problems through mutual cooperation and mutual respect. And no one's trying to put some other expenditures in the bill or hide things here. It's like, okay, well, that's a different problem. We'll deal with that later, but right now we're going to deal with the Zika virus that's breaking out in this country. But, oh, no, 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 no. Now we got to go on recess until we come back in September. I mean, th- this is the most un-Star Trek way of doing things, and that's become de rigueur It's become part of the course. I agree, and I also think that um, when it comes to the films, that was the excuse that, like I said, it, you know, you can't be smart um, for, a, for a movie audience. The good news is, I think, with Fuller and this novel for television idea that he's putting together for Star Trek Discovery and stuff, uh, you know, the best the best Star Trek episodes did hit social issues head on, and I think Fuller is aware of that. I mean, I was at that press conference at uh, Comic Con that was just a half hour and stuff, and um, you know, and like you said, I mean, his his I think work speaks for itself. So a lot of these um, current issues might very well be explored in uh, in Star Trek and in this new incarnation of Star Trek. I hope so. And I, I think, like, you know, unfortunately, it's too. too bad that reality can't follow course. <laughs> but, well, I mean, you know, one of the great things about, uh, especially about 60s genre television, specifically The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, and Star Trek, was they had to get things by standards and practices. Yep. And it, it was easier, like, there's an episode of the original series called A Private Little War that's very much a Vietnam allegory. The Klingons are arming one side. The Federation has to come in and, and yep. help the peaceful people fight the village people. And they talk about, okay, if we give one side weapons and the other side's being armed by the Klingons, it's going to escalate the conflict. Well, they couldn't deal with Vietnam head-on in 60s television. So if you couch that in the, uh, in, in the cloak of a science fiction action adventure show, then you can tell a Vietnam allegorical story and get away with it. The Twilight Zone did the same thing. Stories about war, stories about race. There's all different kinds oh, of, yeah. of, of shows that got away with this. And that's how they did it. And I think that, you know, allegorical storytelling is what science fiction, science fiction, fantasy, and horror uh, does best. Agreed. And, and I, I want to see Star Trek really return to that. And there's a lot of different issues uh, that we can be dealing with. I mean, humanity is, has got a lot of, of ethical and moral dilemmas that are being created by science, whether it's GMOs, whether it's fertility, whether it's life extension, whether it's uh, people's genders being able to be changed fluid, fluidly. And sure. uh, there's a lot of really interesting stories to be mined in an allegorical science fiction show. It's interesting. Um, I don't know if you get the digital channel Heroes and Icons. It used to be MeTV, but their second channel. Um, but they, and we get it in Chicago, and they have all five uh, Star Trek television shows running right now. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, well, like five days a week or six days a week, even. They do it on Sunday. And uh, it's great. And the great thing is, too, is I'm reminded, especially in some early Voyager episodes, how it, and I'm, and it kind of reassured me that even into Voyager and I likely, well, actually Enterprise did as well. They, they would kind of tackle some interesting, you know, science issues. God, I just saw the Enterprise where um, uh, it's the aboriginal race and the, dom- the current dominant race is dying out. And they kind of come to Enterprise for, and flocks for a cure 
of their disease that's killing them. And Phlox discovers actually this, you know, slave race is really going to become the dominant race and obviously has the capacity to evolve. They're just at a slower space. And he goes to Archer and says, you know, what if we gave the – what if, you know, aliens gave the Cro-Magnums that, you know, uh, you know, a chance to survive over Homo sapiens and if, you know, that change had happened and stuff. And it was really great. And it was this really interesting genetic question and everything. And it was, it was terrific. And I'm like, oh, that's cool that they kept doing that. Because like yeah, you I mean, said, I felt both Voyager fun. and, and – you know, I thought Voyager and Enterprise had gotten to be, like you said, kind of a third-rate copy of the original template. But go on, please. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think that's what you, you just you just cited a moment where Star Trek is at its best. Yeah. And uh, I really do think, look, Enterprise, there's, Enterprise, I think, is underrated. And I have to tell you, I was really sort of uh, prejudicial. I was prejudiced against Voyager for a long time. But... I've gone back, and with with, the, with hindsight, there's a lot of Voyager episodes that don't hold up, but there's a lot of really fine Voyager episodes that I think have a lot to say. There's there's Agreed. a great episode about healthcare, you know, yes. medical costs, and there's this two part episode called Workforce uh, that I thought was great, where the crew was all working in these in this industrial area, they'd forgotten who they were, and Yep. There's a lot of great stuff to be found in Star Trek, and I think that now more than ever, we're, we have become so divisive as people. We're so used to our venting our rage online, whether it's on social media or <laughs> one another, that there's, I think, nuanced, thoughtful conversation, especially in the public social media space, is, it has been forgotten. We've forgotten to respect one another, um, there's all kinds of rhetoric and everyone's trying to foment uh, passions on either side to create anger as opposed to reasoned debate. And one of the great things that I think about Star Trek is there was reasoned debate. And we got to see that, especially in the original series between McCoy and Spock. A lot of the time they would have philosophical debate and, and Kirk would be caught in the middle. Sure. And that happened a lot in Star Trek, I mean, Picard was a, was a thinker. He was a, a speaker and he, he was not like Kirk. He didn't just run in where angels fear to tread. He would take a reasoned, measured approach to things. And I would like to see, like, I don't think there's anything better than sitting down with somebody that you disagree with and you Absolutely. explore a topic together where you yes. can actually talk to somebody who might be on the opposite side of an issue, but if they're smart, Again, if they're smart and intelligent and they really understand their issue and you can have a, a thoughtful, intelligent debate, there's no better way to learn. And I, I find it so often, I mean, you know, I, I'm on this, this internet show called Collider Heroes and I deal a lot with... I wanted with, to ask you about that. Yes, go yeah, on. Yeah, I deal with science fiction, fantasy, and especially comic book fans and you know you get in these debates with these uh, admittedly they're younger fans but they talk about dc and marvel as if they're rival ideological camps and you have to like one and not the other i'm just like I, it's, it's so weird <laughs> I you know agree. i mean i this well we're from I, we're from the same era man so no i totally understand what you're saying yeah it's bizarre like, like i was i was talking today i i did not like suicide squad at all I wanted to ask and, you about Suicide Squad. Go on. <laughs> well, it was it was a Franken. To me, 
like men on a mission movie or men and women, men going on mission movies is a genre. It's been a staple of Hollywood, mostly in war films. I mean, you had things like the guns of Navarone where Eagles dare the great escape. Um, A a great modern men on a mission movie is oceans 11. Certainly where you you gather men, men on mission movies usually start the same way. You grab these, these disparate characters that obviously are the polar opposite of one another, but they've all got useful skills. You, you bring them all together. They're all at odds with one another. They have to be whipped into shape and learn to work as a team. And then they have to go off on usually a suicide mission in order to help the allies win the war or do something that's crucial. But each one of their respective gifts is needed to surmount whatever it is the mission is. Sure. And it's, it's not a hard thing to do. And I think Ocean's Eleven is a great modern look at that, where you get these 11 criminals that are brought together. They have to rip off, they have to pull off an insane, ambitious, impossible robbery, and all of their skill sets are brought to bear to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Well, Suicide Squad is a movie that wants to do that, but it doesn't do a good job of any of those things. <laughs> On, on any level. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is if you read what happened with that movie, the studio disagreed with the director. They hired other editors to come in and, and trailer editors cut a movie together. And, and the film, even from the filmmaking, it, it feels like this cobbled together $185 million product and none of it really works together. And But worse, the staple, the men on a mission genre which is which is a template that you can find great examples of was not followed and so the movie doesn't work and and it was maddening to sit in a theater where i as a student of film could have said hey wait a minute there's eight movies you could have gone to look at to base this film on and as it was famously said the studio asked david ayer to write a script in six weeks why would you do that why would you have your writer-director only spend six weeks writing a script and then go spend $185 million. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Like, uh, it's, it's, that's where we're at as a society and as a culture. And it's, I, I, I want, oh, I want th- us to do better. I completely agree. I, uh, and was saying literally the same thing in terms of the story of Suicide Squad. Um, and, dude, Battlestar Galactica in that one Lauren Green season did a version of you know, the man on the mission kind of uh, thing. It was the, the, with the ice mountain or whatever. The I gun think it was on called. ice planet zero parts one. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. And you're right. And no, I, like I said, I was making the same argument. It's like, how do you fuck up this kind of, this kind of formula? You can't. And they did. And I, the one thing I would say though, is they got to learn, man. I mean, really this year and, and God help the wonder woman movie. The trailer looked great. Mm-hmm. But but and I and man, you know, I'm friends with Nicholas Scott, the artist that's working with Greg Rucka on uh, Wonder Woman, along with uh, Liam Sharp. And I was talking to her in San Diego, and she's really like, just like God, you know, Patty just seems to get it. And I, we really had great conversations. The director, um, you know, and and just really is like, I'm telling you, man, I just have this really good feeling. And I'm like, well, Nicola, you love Wonder Woman, and I kind of, you know. I trust your 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 hopes and judgment. We won't know until we see it. But I gotta think they've gotta learn from all of these mistakes this year. Because good Christ, Superman, Batman is horrendous, and I'm sure you felt the same way. Well, I, again, again, 
here's a movie, uh, Batman v Superman. Even the title, uh, <laughs> it, it's redolent of a court case. You know, like yeah. Roe v Wade. <laughs> So, so what I was hoping was I wanted to see a clash of two superheroes, two of the oldest, most famous superheroes ever, that have very different ways of doing things. They have de- very different methodologies. I wanted to see a film where you would have Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent collide in the real world, and then you'd have Superman and Batman collide in the superhero world. Sure. And, and just their ideological differences based on what we saw happen at the end of Man of Steel. Bruce Wayne watching half of Metropolis get destroyed and the people that he employed and knew die. That's all we needed. Yep. That's a movie right there. But by adding Doomsday and adding, I mean, I like Wonder Woman, but by adding all of this stuff, the central conceit of the movie, which is Batman v Superman, they, they moved away from that whenever they could. Let's have Luther. You know, yeah. let's... To put in Doomsday, we'll do this. We'll have a, a sojourn. We'll, we'll add Dark Side and some weird dreams about apocalypse on Earth and all this. Like, what does that have to do with your title, Batman v Superman? You learn in elementary school how to write a five paragraph essay. You state your <laughs> thesis. You use the three other paragraphs to support that thesis. Then you write a conclusion. I want to see that from a film. And they feel they have to stuff. I mean. One of the best moments in that whole movie is when Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne talk at Luther's party, yep. and they debate. Um, Batman's they debate. Uh, yeah. They debate between them, and that's what the the movie should have been about. And yeah, what's interesting actually each is, other. Yeah, you, you know the the Marvel Cinematic Universe works so well because they have one man at the top, Kevin Feige, who before he headed up the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he worked on thirteen different Marvel adaptations for three different studios, Fox, Sony, and Lionsgate. And he was a working producer on 13 movies. He worked his way up. He saw what worked. He saw what didn't work. He understood how to work with creatives to make things happen. So he is now heading up the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and they knock it out of the park again after again after again. Again and again and again, they knock it out of the park. Yes. You know, Civil War made $1.3 billion worldwide. (laughs) Yeah. Because the man has a keen understanding, the head of that company has a keen understanding of how to make movies and how to tell stories in the space that they're telling him. In. Well, Warner Brothers doesn't have that. Warner Brothers has a committee of people. And there's not one, I mean, they talk about, Jeff Johns is a creative. He's a comic book writer. He's a screenwriter. He is not a working producer of films. He does not, he's not David Oselznick. And that's what the, the DC Universe movies need. And they don't have it. Suicide Squad was made by committee. Batman v Superman, they took a filmmaker that, that they've already liked his work in the past. And they're like, you know what, man? You got to cut this movie down and make it two and a half hours. Just hack a half an hour out of it. I mean, they already know that they can make a billion dollars with the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings movies. If any superhero movie could make a billion dollars, it was Batman v Superman. But, you know, it wasn't that good. Do you think that, you know, since then, because these movies were already, Suicide Squad and Batman v Superman were already, you know, done filming and everything. Since then now, uh, Affleck's, Ben Affleck's uh, partner, and I forget his name, film partner, producing partner, and John's have kind of been named co-David Selznick's of the, right. you know, moving forward. And, you know, Jeff, Jeff's got a lot of TV in his background. He did work with Donner um, uh, back right, in the day again, as well. Uh, I would say both 
both Ben Affleck and both both Ben Affleck and Jeff Johns are creative entities. They are not they are not David O. Selznick types. They're not Jerry Bruckheimer. Yeah, who can you run know, the whole they, production. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, they, they are guys that are gonna get in there and get their hands dirty actually creating. And what you need is somebody to manage all of those people. Like, well, like I, I think Jeff Johns has a good uh, feel for the whole DC universe, obviously. I've been a fan of his comic work for years sure. and years. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he knows how to work with all the people on a film production. You know, is, yeah, is he, yeah. he going to know how to call the shots when dealing with a cinematographer who wants a bigger crew? Or does he know how to deal with visual effects people? And and nor does he really want to because he's out there writing and creating. I wouldn't want to see what he's doing hampered. What you need is somebody like a Brian Grazier who's worked with Ron Howard for 30 years. You need a person that's interested in producing from the nuts and bolts standpoint that also understands story. And that is a very rare thing in Hollywood, a true creative producer. And there aren't many of them. And Kevin Feige learned and worked his way up from the bottom. Jeff Johns is a creative being put in that position. He's not somebody that worked his way up producing movies. He came from the writing world. He's still in the writing world. I don't know if he's the guy to run productions. I would the guy I was trying to, not. The guy I was trying to think of that might be that Brian Grazer to Jeff Johns, Ron Howard, is John Berg, who... Again, is was I'm assuming was Affleck's Brian Grazer basically in all of his movies, because that's yeah, the I mean, guy who's you know, and I and again, I don't know him beyond. Well, that's the thing. I don't know what he does on an Affleck movie. Again, if he maybe he does have that Grazer capacity, I don't know. Right, but you need somebody. I mean, the thing about Kevin Feige is he was Lauren Schuler Donner's assistant, the same way yes. that Jeff Johns was was Richard Donner's assistant. Uh-huh. But then, but then uh, Feige went over and worked for Marvel. And he right, and was working under Avi, Avi Avrad and, and all those guys and everything. Right, yeah. and he was working with three different studios, so he saw how the studio yes. system worked. He saw how movies, uh, some were better than others, and the mistakes. He learned on things like Electra. You don't want to move too far away from the source material. The right. source material is where you look toward your best ideas. I mean, it's really interesting that if you go back and you look at Civil War or you look at Winter Soldier, these are storylines that were they were originated right out of the comics. You bet. You know, Age of Ultron. They all and, and they achieved great success. I mean, Batman v Superman. They took some of Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. They took some of the Death of Superman. Like, why would you take these these stories that could make one movie unto themselves and jam a bunch of them together? I couldn't agree more. I understand, and I and I would agree with you. Yeah, I mean, back to Suicide Squad itself. Um, I did think I came in with very low expectations, given the word of mouth that we were all hearing. In fact, I think I, you weren't on the episode, but I think I heard uh, one of John Schnepp's uh, Collider episodes where everyone that was in the room is like, "I don't want to pay attention to the bad critics, I'm, you know, critiques I'm hearing. I want to go in and I want to like the movie." And you might have right. been on that show. I can't remember. But, uh, no, we were all disappointed. But that said, when I went in, I liked, obviously, Margot Robbie. I think she did fine. I thought Will Smith did an adequate job. I didn't think he yeah. was over-the-top great, but I think he I mean, was just I like being those, Will Smith. I liked those characters, but the problem was they had no purpose. Agreed. I mean, No, the, the, big, story, the story fell apart completely. Go on. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was a, it was like a non-story, and the whole thing, the whole thing about building a team, is that if you look at Ocean's Eleven as an example, Danny Ocean goes and accumulates his team based on their abilities. He knows that okay, we're going to go rob the vault at the Bellagio, and these these three casinos. It's a, it's an impossible job, but I'm going to go get the 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 nine other Brad Pitt and and and. Uh, and George Clooney are going to go get the nine other criminals that they need. They handpick these people based on their abilities. Yep. And you learn through the course of the plot exactly why he wanted those people. And you see them doing their jobs, coming together and learning how to work together and pull off this heist. Well, in Suicide Squad, I don't even know why those – why is Harley <laughs> Quinn on the team? What does she, what does she do? You know, other than right. she's okay, she's insane, and she likes to steal handbags out of store windows. But other than that, like, I don't know why you would have her on some kind of a crack team to fight metahumans. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the thing. Viola Davis is like, Superman is dead. We do not have the deterrent for the next super-powered uh, villain. And yet, these are the guys that are going to handle it? No, I, it completely falls apart. It, it yeah, absolutely like, falls apart, and it, and, I, and it got me angry because it fell apart. And as you say, it's such an easy formula. Go on. Well, it's, <laughs> it, and also, the Suicide Squad doesn't even have a real mission. The mission you're watching go on is a, is a, is a misdirection. And the actual creatures that they're fighting, these mystical, ancient, godlike creatures, they couldn't do anything. I mean, they just basically right. luck into this conflict, and they get lucky. It's not because of their skills that they win anything. Yep. I and agree. If you're going to make a movie like that, you should give the the Suicide Squad uh, an opponent that they have a reason to be involved. They don't they don't even know the team other than Rick Flagg who was involved with the Enchantress doesn't even know what they're doing. Yes. They're not told. They're just said you're going to go someplace really bad and get yourself <laughs> killed. Like, okay, <laughs> where are we going? Why are we going? I don't know. Okay, you're going to let me out of prison. I guess I'll do what you say. But the whole point of, of for an audience is to be able to anticipate what our characters are going to do. You know, I mean, sure. you look at some of the great movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark. The job is to get the Ark. The whole movie is based on getting the Ark, getting the Ark. And that's Indiana Jones' primary concern. Uh, I, I equate Suicide Squad to aliens because the plot, if you think about it, it's similar. They have to go into an environment. <laughs> I mean, if you look yeah. at it, the aliens are basically the human beings. I mean, you don't even yeah. know that human beings are being transformed into these pustule heads that the squad has to fight. You don't even know that until yep. the Suicide Squad comes across it. It's like, isn't that a big thing that these mystical beings are transforming human beings? into, And they just kill them. They kill these former human beings who have been turned into cannon fodder. <laughs> well, what if they can get transformed back into regular people? You don't know. Exactly. Yeah, they they picked the wrong criminals. They should have picked uh, Doc Mangus or some of the the evil scientists and stuff of the DC universe instead. Right. That's I mean, they don't really have ah. the, what's Killer Croc going to do against those mystical creatures? I mean, no, at one point right. he's like, "Oh, I guess you need somebody to go underwater. I can go underwater." <laughs> oh wow, you stumbled onto a use. Good for you. <laughs> well, don't you want? I, I, honestly, my. And, and shame on me, I guess, until it happens, because I always yell at people for doing this as well. But I just anticipate 
additional scenes that will be on the DVD or Blu-ray or uh, some other cut, some extended cut that will make a much clearer story, just like we got with Batman v Superman. Again, still a shitty movie, but at least a clearer understanding of whatever story they threw up at us, you know, in that in that hour longer cut. Well, uh, yeah, and I, like even I look at the movie, like the Joker isn't even a part of the main. What's going on? I mean, if oh, I had made that no, movie, he's there for Harley. He's there. He's there to kind of deepen Harley's story, and that's it, really. Well, yeah, I would have. I would have reversed it. I would have captured Harley Quinn, kept her on irons, and then got the Joker to help you to lead the team, even sure, the, to get Harley back. We'll release Harley to you if you come in and help us. Have you seen the animated Assault on Arkham from the yes, year before? Yes, I loved it. That's a great movie. My buddy Heath Corson wrote that. He's a yeah, good I, man. I, he, you know. I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that's, a, again, a good 10 to 20 years of great Suicide Squad comics that they could have lifted a story from. Oh, yeah. Very easily. And, I, and, and I'm surprised he did it, honestly. You know, the, the mystical beings... Literally, it's a six thousand year old god. What does that have to do with any member of the Suicide Squad at all? <laughs> I mean, you're, I, I mean, you want to tell a story. It's like I don't, I don't understand the, the characters have no connection to the mission you're on. Yep. You know, even if you're watching a World War II movie, it's always the Allies. These guys have to come together to blow up some Hitler's bunker. You know, sure. they have to go do something that will help the war effort. That yes. will hopefully save the free world as we know it. In this movie, they, they they don't even know what they're going to do. So how does an audience enjoy that mission? I mean, it's like, look, even James Bond, you always know, other than with Spectre, which is tremendously disappointing. But with James Bond, he has a clear-cut <laughs> mission. I've got to go yes. achieve this goal. With Suicide yes. Squad, you don't even know. I, Dude, I said the same thing to friends who were like, I liked it. And I'm like, why were they there? What was the point of the mission? I don't... No, I, I, you know, it was very weird, and it, it, it obviously didn't make sense. And again, that's why I suspect there are going to be additional scenes that are going to make it clearer. And what gets me angry is, and you could appreciate this because of your vast DVD and movie cut knowledge and stuff. Go back to the original Donner Superman, and even a couple of the Star Treks as well, where there are like, you know, a half hour to forty-five minutes of extra footage that didn't make the theatrical cut. We saw them on TV. We might have seen them in additional scenes on DVDs. But the theatrical version still was, I would say, the best cut of the movie and of the clearest story. Everything was understood. It was great to get the extra scenes, but literally, for the most part back then, you didn't need it. Now you need it, and you don't get it in the theatrical version. You have to wait for the DVD. That's bullshit. And that's so stupid, and I don't understand... Because even you can even make that argument with Age of Ultron, even. And that's just one of those rare Marvel doubles compared to the home runs that they normally hit. But, I mean, that's the thing. There are, there are these occasional things where, oh, once you see these additional scenes, now it makes more sense. Hell, even, and I think we talked about it last year when we talked uh, Star Trek Nemesis, a lot of those additional scenes, it's like, oh, you should have left those in, dude. Oh, yeah. No, I, 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 look, I, I totally agree. <laughs> but, again, if, if movies have gotten so, they're so much more expensive now. And there's so much riding on, on, on movies. I mean, you're looking at, they're spending, if you looked at, say, a movie like Star Trek VI, that movie costs $26 million, albeit $91. Wow. $1. But you look at Star Trek uh, Beyond, costs $185 million. Yep. And, and in that movie, they spend, an, I, I would love to see a dollar 
uh, amount put to the destruction of the enterprise. And you're like, first of all, nobody wants to see the enterprise destroyed yet again. The enterprise <laughs> is as much a character as anybody else. And if yeah. you're going to make a movie where the enterprise is being destroyed, you're going to now spend, let's say it costs $25 million. Why not get rid of that scene? Don't have the enterprise destroyed and come up with some interesting story and save yourself 25 million bucks. But there's this thought that audiences will only respond to spectacle. They will only respond. Audiences are the same as they've always been. What they want to do is they want to be first and foremost. They want to be entertained. They want to see a great story with great characters. People watch the Shawshank Redemption every day, not because of the action, but because that movie never ceases to touch your heart. It never ceases to get you involved in the relationship between Andy Dufresne and Red. And it didn't cost a lot of money. And to this day, people are watching that film and loving it. Well, Star Trek should be like Shawshank Redemption. It yeah. shouldn't be like, you know, Star Wars. That's not what Star Trek is all about. You look at the next generation. There's a wonderful episode called The Measure of a Man in the second season where Data is put on trial for being property. It's, a, it's an episode that's set in a few rooms, and it's the best, one of the best episodes of Next Generation. And it doesn't, it's a cheap show. It was a cheap bottle episode of that show and it doesn't have the Borg. It doesn't have space battles. It's guys in a room talking and that's just as effective as any other Star Trek episode. And there's this weird conventional wisdom that says audiences today need to be overstimulated all the time. Let's, if you had one Tyrannosaurus, why not give him 20 where (laughs) that's not what people want. People want great characters that they can love and they want to revisit again and again and again. I mean, it's funny. Batman v Superman was as much about two guys uh, trying to play a game of one-upsmanship with one another at a dinner party as they were battling it out on the rain, the rain, the rain swept roofs of Metropolis and Gotham City. Yep. No, I I couldn't agree more as far as that goes. The uh, It's so funny because I did like Star Trek Beyond, but I don't disagree with anything you said. I uh, it, it did, you know, did you hate it? You know, I didn't, I didn't hate it. I just watched it and I was like, what is this movie really about? Why, why am I being told this story? Is this a story I haven't heard before? Not really. Have I learned anything from this story? No. There's, there's so many interesting stories to be told about where humanity is right now in our, in our, uh, uh, in our confused state of knowledge today. That, that <laughs> any other story, then you, you, you're watching a story of a half-baked villain who wants to do a half-baked thing for half-baked reasons. Um, I would much rather see something that challenges my intellect and um, uh, is much more mysterious and enriching ultimately and satisfying to me. You watch it and you're like, Oh, that's okay. I guess it's fine. (laughs) See, I I guess I liked when I finally heard the backstory of Balthazar Edison, I'm like, Oh, that's a fun character. I would be interested in seeing him again back where I guess uh, Star Trek uh, discovery is going to be, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I, I assume there's, that's a possibility that you could see about the Tsar Edison. I, I, I don't know. Right. And, maybe and, maybe so not. I don't know. But I, I, so this was a human being who apparently forgot where he parked his starship 
and he's <laughs> dabbling with alien technology that's transforming him into this thing because his life's being extended and he's using powers from the movie Life Force to suck other people's life energy. <laughs> like, I'm like, I don't know. Like, what do you want to do with this, dude? Like, where are you going to go? You're going to, you don't want the Federation to push outward, so you're going to destroy one space station? Like, isn't there a thousand more scattered throughout the galaxy? It just was weird. I'm like, I don't. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you something. You, you know, you know a mo- what movie came out recently that's also based on a comic book that I loved was Kingsman. Since I talked Absolutely. to you last. Well, in that movie, Sam Jackson wants to basically eliminate much of humanity because of global warming, and he's trying to save the world. Yes. Well, I wanted him to win. He was a villain <laughs> that, sure, it was monstrous that he was going to murder a bunch of people, you know, a billion people, whatever, two billion people. But look, we're all going to die anyway. So he, he expedites the process, and he saves the planet. I was like, that's a really interesting dilemma. Like, how do you, you could admire his, his methodology and you could admire what he wants to accomplish, even though what he wants to do is monstrous, but he's essentially correct. You're, now, you that's know, you, an interesting uh, villain. Also, Dr. Noah from Julian Bashir's uh, secret agent uh, hologram uh, program in Deep Space Nine, that was his plan as well. Right to to basically eliminate a good portion of the world so that the population that survives can really you know use the resources and everything can be okay. I mean the interesting so. thing about the interesting thing about that kind of a of a of a uh, of a villain is let's say today there was somebody there's seven billion people on the planet. Let's say somebody tomorrow eliminated six billion people yeah. for whatever reason, and there was only one billion people left. The earth would be, everybody would be sad. You talk about, okay, it was monstrous, it was horrible or whatever. But if it was done in the blink of an eye, when everybody disappeared, say it was a painless death, nobody, nobody, it would just literally wink out of existence. And the, the, the one billion people that were left, say they were handpicked, they were the best of the best, whatever. Um, would that be such a bad thing? <laughs> Hitchhiker's I mean, guy. I mean, if, you, if you really think about it, we're, we're, our lifespans are up to 80 years. Yep. So we've basically got 80 years, and, and we live our lives, and uh, most of us live lives of quiet desperation. Sometimes we get to fall in love, we have children, whatever. But really, what makes our lives any more valuable than anybody else's? And what if we had to ask ourselves that question? What if sure. one in every 10 people, what if tomorrow for whatever reason, in order for our species to survive, one in every 10, only, only one in every 10 people could survive. Yeah. How, you, you know, what would, who, who would you want, if you knew that you weren't going to be one of those people that was going to survive, what would be the criteria that you would want to be, have those people judged on? You know, and, and I, and I think that there's, there's hard questions. We, we, we have, we're no longer expanding westward. There is no more frontiers left to conquer. And all we're True. doing is consuming the planet and we're being mean to one another on a global level, whether it's, you know, Brexit, whether it's terrorism, whether it's gang rapes in India, whatever it is that we're doing, whatever horrors we're visiting upon one another. Um, when, when is enough enough? And, and at the end of the day, if you've got a villain like Sam Jackson and Kingsman, who is going to eliminate, you know, 75% of the world's population in one fell swoop. (laughs) People might think it's bad for like a hundred years, 
But <laughs> hey, we got a lot more room. We got a lot more food. We got a lot more resources. Yeah, yeah, man. And a lot less people polluting the planet. And people would <laughs> the, the people that were left would value their lives more. True. That's true. You're killing, dude. You're like um, uh, the Red Skull taking the cosmic cube and uh, going back in time and convincing Steve Rogers' mother that Hydra is actually a, a force for good. So <laughs> well, look, at, look at look at the outrage. That's a my per, that's a perfect example to me. Anyone who's read comics for any length of time, the online outrage at the revelation that Steve Rogers was somehow a Hydra agent. <laughs> All these fanboys are screaming and yelling. This was that hilarious? Boycott Marvel Comics, or whatever. I'm like, wasn't that ridiculous? Really, guys? Do you really <laughs> believe that Steve Rogers is a Hydra agent? You don't don't you understand? This is just yet another story. You're going to be pulled into this online controversy. I mean, it's just it, all of the anybody who got mad about Steve Rogers being a Hydra agent, they're first on my chopping block. Oh, they're Rob, gone. please. What about what about the honestly? Because you and I are people who speak about pop culture all the time. What about the other bloggers and podcasters that were as passionate as these online fans shaking their fists and saying, Marvel, you've you've raped my childhood. How dare you? And, you know, I'm a Jew and this would never happen. Simon and Kirby would never allow this to happen. I mean, they'd get that personal about it. And, you know, I had Nick Spencer on, <laughs> the guy who wrote the story. And I'm like, I'm sorry that things are as crazy as they are, Nick. I'm sorry people are calling, literally calling for your head. Uh, you're telling an interesting story that got in the 12 cent comic era would be an imaginary Superman story and well, nobody would blink. What's so weird is, is like when I picked up that comic and read it and when he says, hail Hydra, I'm like, wow, that's cool. I want to see what happens now. Sure. Like, like <laughs> I'm like, it's a comic book story, man. And you know <laughs> that they're not going to allow Captain America to be a Nazi, to be a Hydra agent, but, but clearly something like when it said to me, like clearly something happened. Something with the timeline, something, whatever it was. But right. it's like you want to. I want to know what, know what happens next. I don't get angry. Well, and further, as as Nick pointed out, no. What's interesting now is what happens to the other heroes that, while Steve is under this influence, is now a very dangerous person to have in the room. The the it's like you know Steve Rogers, Captain America is the Walter Cronkite of superheroes. He's the most trusted hero in the world. What happens when the most trusted hero in the world? suddenly becomes your greatest enemy, and you don't know it. And we know it. I mean, this is Hitchcock kind of storytelling happening and stuff, and I think it's, I think it's terrific. It, it is terrific, and what's interesting is you should, want to, you should want to, like, strap in and enjoy the ride and see, <laughs> yeah. see where they take you. And it's like, isn't that what com cool comic book storytelling is all about? Like, wh what you – and the idea that people's first reactions were to be – you know, to get angry. It's like, it's like what, what, with Gamergate, when you see these video game, these female video game designers, which is great. I mean, let's see more women are, are, are as much a part of the genre now as, of course. as ever. You go to Comic-Con, it's 50% guys and girls. It's amazing. It's Damn terrific. Yep. And, and yet, so you have girls getting involved in the gamer space and these, these ridiculous boys suddenly threaten them with all kinds of physical and horrific bodily harm and violence. Like, where did that even come from? I agree. And, I, like, you know, it's, it's funny. Be, go on. Go on. I'll, well, we'll, it, we'll it's, 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 it's frankly disgusting. And you read 
one of the things I was most fascinated by in the last year was Elliot Roger, the guy who shot up uh, Santa Barbara. And he wrote, okay. he, was a, he was a boy, he was a kid, a guy, like in his early 20s. He wrote this manifesto, the most entitled, he believed that he just deserved to have a pretty girlfriend and that all these other guys that had girls didn't deserve them, but he did, simply because he wanted one. And, and we live in this world where everybody thinks that just because they want something, hey, I want this, can I have it? And if they don't get it, that there's something wrong with the world. And I don't understand that at all. Like when I was growing up, I understood that, you know what, if I wanted something, I didn't just get it. I, my, my parents were not just going to bequeath every wish, every single thing I came up with. I had to go get a job. If yep. I wanted something, my parents were like, great, go buy it, as long as you make your own money. Yep. And, and we live in this weird, entitled space where nobody understands that they have to earn what it is that they want. Yeah. And and I just don't get where that comes from at all. I mean, I do understand where it comes from. It comes from social media and, and you know, you get to see people like like your whatever your whoever your favorite Instagram star is or your YouTube star is. I mean, everybody thinks that that oh, well, I want to be famous just like that person, so I should just get to be famous. You know, I I listen to people. I remember reading about like Sean Combs, P Diddy. Sean Combs was a guy who was producing records when he was 14 years old. I mean, Sean Combs became an incredible success, diversified his businesses. That guy earned everything that he got mm-hmm. from scratch. It was a lifelong music was his lifelong calling. He made a lot of good calls. He worked with a lot of great people. He was really talented, but the kid busted his ass from the time he was a young teenager. And yet you have people going, oh, I want to be Sean Combs. Well, yeah, motherfucker, you got to get, get busy when you're like 12. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, can I swear? Was that bad? Oh, of course you can. Oh, no, absolutely, man. No, it's oh. the internet. Well, I mean, and where <laughs> where is that? I mean, where is that? I want this. I want that. Well, great. Go out and earn it. Go out and get it. The world is yours. I mean, even Tony Montana, when he came over from Cuba, <laughs> you know, it's like he had to make sure that Mr. Salsa knew what was up, you know, and when Mel was getting in his way, Tony Montana grabbed what he wanted, took what he wanted. Then he, he broke his own rule. He got high on his own supply, and he lost his empire. But still, he came over, and his immigrant experience was, was he worked his ass off, got to yes. the top of the heap, and then he blew it all when he became a coke addict. But still, there was an important lesson there. Tony Montana worked his ass off to get where he was. We should be voting for Tony Montana in November. Well, you know, that's what the immigrant experience in America is like. You come to America from a – you you might have been a political prisoner in Cuba, but you come to America and you grab what you want. You work hard on the streets. You end up with everything. He just had a weird incestuous fixation with his sister. So he killed her and killed his best friend, and then he he did a bunch of coke, and he betrayed uh, his supplier, which he shouldn't have done. That was bad. In hindsight, I wouldn't have done that. But, you know, Tony Montana could have gone out and been the greatest cocaine dealer Miami ever saw. And then gone legitimate, got out of the business, and uh, put his money like Michael Corleone did, tried to put in international immobiliary, you know, and go legit. <laughs> but he wound well, up. Well, you went right to three. That's fantastic. You went right to three. That's that's wonderful. I think I like three, three well. has a lot of great stuff in it. I agree with you. It's I completely agree with you. It's got good stuff. No, it, it's yeah, it's a lesser of the three, 
But if yeah, there's a lot, like you said, I completely agree. There's a lot of good stuff in it. That's funny. I was just talking uh, to Brian Bendis the other day. Are you psyched for the Brian? Speaking of uh, Scarface, are you psyched for the De Palma documentary coming out at the end of the month? Right. I can't wait to see that. Yeah, I've only seen the trailer, but yeah, it looks amazing. So, hey, how about uh, the other night on HBO? Because I didn't uh, see it in festival screenings when it was out uh, there. The uh, Hitchcock Truffaut documentary. Have you had a chance to watch that that yet? No, I'm. I'm you know, I that book. I worship that book. I've oh, read it yeah. a hundred times, and it was one of those books that I. It was dog-eared in film school. I was constantly reading from that book, and uh, I can't wait to see that documentary. You know, and I'm sure you know, archive.org, that wonderful internet archive, has the uh, radio uh, broadcasts of their of their conversations back and forth. Yes. And a lot of that's in the movie as well, obviously, and it's all transcribed in the book. But it is, it's fun to hear them. I mean, it's kind of because of the translation as they're speaking can get distracting or whatever, but it really is amazing hearing them just, you know, speak to each other that way. Right. Pretty I mean, cool that's stuff. what I want more of. You know, Hell I like yeah, man. That, that kind of discourse all over the place. Did you see the Mike Nichols HBO uh, documentary? Yeah, I loved it. That was terrific, too, yeah. You know, again, Ben Bendis is another guy like uh, like uh, you and I in terms of being that kind of movie hound and stuff. Although for you, obviously, this is part of your professional vocation. I mean, you know, you're a director and all, and it gives me a chance to ask. <clears throat> we mentioned it earlier in terms of uh, Star Trek Discovery being in that same timeline that you were playing with with Axanar. What can you tell us right now about the, you know, if anything, about the uh, the lawsuit and everything that's going on? Well, you know, the lawsuit the lawsuit goes on, and um, you know, I'm not personally privy to a lot of what goes on because I wasn't named in the lawsuit. Okay. But but you know, they they they're not really interested in settling with us amicably. They 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 want us to basically. Um, stop what we're doing and, and go away. Uh, I don't, you know, it, it grinds forward. I know they were really eager to have a settlement before these announcements came. Now I understand why. Um, because if we had settled, the, the fact that this new television series is so close to the time period of Axanar, to me, is very uh, suspect. And if there was no lawsuit and we had gone ahead and because by now we would have Axanar by my schedule, what I was doing as the director, mm -hmm. we would have debuted the entire movie September 8th, uh, 2016 next month, uh, less than a month from now, because that's the actual 50th anniversary of the first broadcast of Star Trek, which was a man trap on NBC, September 8th, mm -hmm. 1966. That's when Axanar was going to be finished and released. And, uh, you know, I can't help but wonder if the lawsuit came about as a, a, a fact, the fact that we were working in the same space as they were, literally and figuratively. Um, I don't know if that's true, but it's, it's, a strange, it's a strange thing. And I think that, you know, I think this lawsuit, they just figured that we would, we would say, oh, uh, uh, we'll go away. But when they're asking for damages... You don't have a choice but to, to defend yourself. And also, sure. we still have an obligation to our donors. And I think what's really too bad is if we were able to finish the movie, it would have come out and, and it would have sort of probably made a splash for about a couple of weeks in the press. 
and then it would have gone away. And it would have been seen as, as a celebration, another, another fan celebration of the 50th anniversary of the franchise. Last weekend was the big 50th anniversary convention in Las Vegas, the big creation mm-hmm. show, the, the end-all, be-all of Star Trek conventions that was the biggest convention ever held. And it was a celebration of all things Star Trek. I mean, Whoopi Goldberg made her first convention appearance there. And I oh, think wow. if they'd let us make the movie, it would have come and gone, and we would have moved on. And that would have been that. But I think that by suing us, they created far more press. They had to come out with fan film guidelines. I think they did more harm publicly. Look, in another year, people will forget most of all this. They'll concentrate (laughs) on the new TV series. It'll it'll live and die on its own merits. I, for one, I hope it's really good. I really love Brian Fuller. I love what he did, the reinvention of Thomas Harris's I adored Thomas Harris's Hannibal. Well, now it's a quartet, but I loved Red Dragon. I loved Silence of the Lambs. I even loved Hannibal, the book Hannibal. Hannibal mm-hmm. Rising seemed like a shameless cash grab. But okay. the first three Hannibal books and how we saw those movies, I mean, there's two versions of Red Dragon. Silence of the Lambs, of course, won an Academy Award. And then Ridley Scott's Hannibal is a mm-hmm. very respectable horror opera in its own right. Yes. And then to see how, how Brian Fuller reinvented the Hannibal mythos uh, the way he did, and it went from being – the Hannibal TV series is a surrealist nightmare, and I think it's one of the greatest horror television shows ever uh, mounted for the medium of television. It's phenomenal. And it's a really interesting reinterpretation of Thomas Harris's original subject – original novels, and then also – uh, what, how they played off the films that have been made. And it was tremendous. And if Brian Fuller can bring any of that to bear on Star Trek, which I know he will, I think it's going to be a fantastic series to watch. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that this lawsuit, this Axar lawsuit, got so much press and, and it became sort of this very divisive moment in Star Trek fandom because ultimately if they just let us go about and do our work, we would have made another great fan film. Uh, our donors would have had their uh, uh, donations fulfilled. And uh, we, we would have got a couple of weeks ink, and that would be it. But as it stands now, we're eight months into this lawsuit, going on month nine, and it hasn't settled. It looks like it's going to indeed go to court. And at the end of the day, that is the most antithetical Star Trek thing ever. Yeah. You know, and well, we've had forty years. Yeah, we've had forty years of fan films. Go on. No, please go on. Well, no, and and I I just wish that I mean I don't think ultimately anybody wins by taking this to trial. You know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, CBS, how are they going to win? I mean, we we were say well, people can say whatever they want, but I'm a lifelong Star Trek fan. Alec Peters is a lifelong Star Trek fan. Um. We made a really cool short film, all of us collectively, with Prelude to Axnar. Everyone loves it. People still love it. It, it is what it is. You can see what we're yeah. trying to do. Watch it. We would have done a feature version of that. And people would have had those two things to watch and enjoy, and, and we would have moved on. But, but as it stands now, it's become, I don't think it's been good for anyone. It's certainly, I mean, it's been one of the most disappointing experiences of the last, of my adult life. I mean, I'm sure 
you know, making Axanar would have been fulfilling a childhood dream, and I, I would have been able to do something I thought was really cool that expressed my, my, my lifelong love of Star Trek, and I would have been able to fulfill the promise that we made to our donors, and we would have all had something we could look at and go, hey, man, that's all awesome. We all could have participated yeah. in that, and we all made something cool, and then we would have all moved on. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's people that think that it was some kind of a nefarious plot or something. It really wasn't. I mean, it started out like, hey, man, we were making a fan film. I mean, Prelude to Axanar. I worked on it while I had a day job. I worked on it at night. I worked on it on the weekends. Mm-hmm. You know, it was something cool that I was doing with a bunch of my friends. And we released it on the Internet for free. People can watch it for free. They can enjoy it for free. Um, I put out a really cool Blu-ray that I produced at a lot of personal expense and I just wanted it to be cool and then we got sued it turned into a sort of a nightmare that was uh, unfortunate for everybody really because nobody wins no I hear you man you know I, I I'm a I'm a fan of uh, prelude and I supported the uh, the uh, not the Kickstarter it was the uh, the second one was it GoFundMe Indiegogo Indiegogo, thank you. Yes, that's where my money went, was the Indiegogo campaign. And, yeah, I understand. And, I, and also, I mean, I get I mean, that's the thing. Because people are like, well, don't you understand that it's CBS's and Paramount's property? Sure, of course. Absolutely. It's just that, um, yeah, there's been 40 years of these fan films. Granted, technology has made it better so that we can have better fan films. But it's, at the end of the day, yeah, I don't, I, I, I guess uh, the, the fact that you guys were building sets and, stu- and, a, and a studio and stuff. Well, you were leasing studio space, right? I don't know. I don't know. Like, yeah, that I mean, that's another be... thing that people don't get. We, we just rented a warehouse, converted it into a soundstage, and, you know, we took out a three-year lease. And Axonar was not expected to pay for that lease for the three years. We were going to make Axonar be done with it and then move on and make other things. And another, this idea that there's been a lot of our detractors that are like, you guys built a for-profit studio. Well, first of all, I don't even understand what that means because we're, we want to make movies. And in order to make movies, we have to get them funded. Sure. And we have to get them funded somehow, whether it's if I, as an independent filmmaker, I'm always looking for private equity or a studio. To, sure. To, and then a studio, we, we call it a studio. We have to pay rent. Like rent has to be paid. We don't own it. So it's like, I guess the idea was that we were going to rent it out to other people. But even if we rented it out to other people, it would cover the rent. And and look, we could be upgrading that studio for the next 10 years. There's all kinds of things that we could do to it constantly to upgrade it, whether it was soundproofing, air conditioning. I mean, putting in an air conditioner into that building would have cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, that would have been something that, that if we rented the studio out, a lot, we would then take that money and put it, like, even after Axonar was finished, we'd still have to rent the studio out to other people. If we weren't using it for our own finance projects, we would still want to be upgrading it. Like, the the plan was to have a facility we could continually make product in. You know, and whether we were going to allow other fan films to come in and use it for free. I I mean, what you want to do, look, everybody wants to get their their projects to help them fund other things. I mean, that's, it's interesting because you talk about all these people like James Colley. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, you yeah, know, I put my own James mo- is. yeah, he's like, I put my own money into all this. Well, okay. Whether it's your own money or whether it's fan donated money, it's still money that has to be made. 
it, you know, things cost money. And, and it's such a weird, it was always such a weird thing about like when you're making, when you're making movies, when you crowdfund money to make a film, whether it's a Star Trek movie, fan film, whatever, if you're crowdfunding money, you do it because you either have to pay people or buy equipment or supplies or whatever. You're doing sure. it because things cost money. That's why you crowdfund, period. Right. And, and there's this weird idea that like, and when you get a, a million, we raise $1.2 million. Well, somebody has to account for that money. You know, I mean, somebody, if, let's say we paid an outside firm to manage that money. Mm -hmm. You would pay them, what, $50,000? So, sure. you know, people yeah, got okay. mad that Alec was getting a salary, but he was in charge of all that money. And it's like, there's costs associated with taking care of that much money. And a lot of people don't understand the economic realities. They think that they hear the word fan film and that a fan film, you know, you're making a movie in your parents' garage. But look, when you take in $1.2 million to do anything, I don't care what it is, whether it's manufacturing tennis shoes or, or whatever, there are costs associated that have to be uh, paid. And uh, we, I'll tell you this, uh, I have a lot of action. I've got visual effects shots that are finished. I have a lot of it. It, it, it was going to be so cool. I can imagine the pro, the trailer was great. You know, the 20 minute movie was great. Go on. Yeah. And I, I just, I worked really hard on it and I have a lot of, I mean, one day, you know, we never even stopped working on the script and uh, there's lots of, and I'm going to, I, I find it very interesting that the new Star Trek TV series is set in the same time frame as Axanar. I mean, maybe, who knows, maybe they'll do their own version of the Battle of Axanar. Right, know. well, that's kind of, yeah, that's what you were suggesting in terms of what uh, Fuller might have been saying. Who knows? We'll see. Um, yeah, I... Um, I, I, I understand I understand where you're coming from. I do understand uh, people would say that obviously, uh, and I only feel obligated to say this. Yeah, you're 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 making your cop you're making your capital for your fan film based on you know a, a copywritten you know intellectual property. But but again, it's like you've pointed out. James Colley does it with uh, his or was doing it with his stuff. I, what I don't understand is they came to terms with the Star Trek Renegades people, which is Tim Russ's group. And they seem to ma manage to, like, I guess they're going to change their designs and stuff like that to make it less Trek. And they're like, we're going to do our own thing. And they and it's weird because they didn't make as much money as you, but they didn't make a small amount of money. And they certainly made more money than what Kali and uh, what... Uh, they, oh, you, they uh, still made hundreds, they made hundreds of thousands of dollars, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I would imagine... Feature. Yes, yes. Starring Walter Koenig and, and Michelle Nichols playing Ahura and Chekhov. And oh, oh, that was that Gods and whatever. That was the earlier one with Alan uh, Ruck as well. I was yeah, they talking did about Gods the, and Men. Yeah, but I, was it the same people that made that? Also made uh, Renegades. Yes, same group. Of oh, people I didn't realize they made both movies. And it's it, to me, it's really interesting that they now it seems knowing that our uh, series, I mean the new series Discovery, takes place during the same time frame. I mean, Prelude to Axnar when those characters are being interviewed in the 20th, theoretically in the 23rd century for that documentary, mm -hmm. literally Prelude to Axanar takes place in the same year as Star Trek Discovery is set. <laughs> so the, the crew of Star Trek Discovery could actually be watching the Four Years War documentary, some weird <laughs> alternate future. <laughs> now, now I, I find that to be, I'm kind of tickled by that. I find that to be 
a little bit strange that you would think that with, with Prelude to Axanar existed for six months before they announced a new Star Trek TV series. Now, did they know then? Did they watch Prelude to Axanar and go, you know what, that's a great time to set a new Star Trek series in? Did they do that from the very beginning? And is that why we were sued in Star Trek Renegades or Star Trek Continues or Star Trek New Voyages was not? Did we tread on some, or did they see us and the way to get rid of the competition was, well, not that we're competition at all, but it just seems weird to me that you could make a TV series like, why not set it at the beginning of the 23rd century? Set it, set it halfway between Enterprise and the original series. Why set it literally at the same time of Axanar and the cage? It's weird. Yeah, I'm with you. No, I'm definitely with you. Well, and also there was the Babylon 5 Deep Space Nine similarities. And, you know, Straczynski made a pitch to Paramount before, you know, coming up with Babylon 5, as I understand it. Am I right? You're, you're probably more... No, no, I, I agree with you. But, you know, in the case of that, um, we had seen Star Trek, we had seen Star Bases in Star Trek before. True. But it was Space Dock or K-7. And I think when you're trying to come up with a Star Trek TV series and you're thinking, okay, what can we do? The idea of setting it on a space station where instead of you going to the adventure, the adventure comes to you was a case of parallel development because star, star bases and, and are, are, are a staple of science fiction. They've been around for a long sure. time. Oh, definitely. Uh, and I, do I think that the new Star Trek TV series, is it a copy of, of Axar? No, I don't think that. I do think, however, that there are elements of that time frame that make it desirable to look, look into and explore. And I do think that Prelude to Axnar, if nothing else, shows you the appeal of going back to those retro. Like, what I want to know is, we already know what Starfleet uniforms look like. We've seen them in the cage. Right. So is the Star Trek Discovery TV series going to use those, those same costumes? And if not, how are they going to explain that? Because you're, you're now setting a show in the same continuity. Like if there are heavy cruiser class ships like the Enterprise, which we know exists, how are they going to explain that all the way? I mean, Brian Fuller today even said he's always been fascinated by Spock's mother. Yes. Um, yeah, Amanda Grayson. Yep. Well, Amanda was already an older woman. She'd already had Spock. Spock had, had already grown up and been through the Vulcan Science Academy and was already on the Enterprise. With so Captain during Pike. the time of Star Trek Discovery, Pike commands the Enterprise and Spock is the science officer. We know that. Yep. So immediately, already you're going into a new Star Trek series where people are going to go, hey, are we going to see Pike? Are we going to sure. see the, the Telosians? You know, what are we going to see? I mean, sure. It, it's weird to me that they would start out a new series already having fans ask those questions. But maybe they have a good reason for it. I don't know. Well, I, you know, hey, man, as soon as I heard uh, where it was in the timeline, I'm like, are we going to see Admiral Nagura, a younger Admiral Nagura, perhaps a Commodore Nagura? Uh, right. You know, some of these, some of these other captains that are – you know, kind of senior uh, Commodore Decker, Matt Decker. Maybe we'll see him as a as a young captain. 
or a well, young yeah, or what, officer or something. What's really interesting is Kirk. Kirk is a lieutenant. I mean, already the incident that we we found out about on the Farragut, you know, when the vampire cloud attacks the crew and kills right. Captain How many Garavik. years ago is obs- yeah? How many years prior to that was obsession and every from obsession? I think I, I think obset- the, those events are pre Star Trek Discovery. So Kirk and everybody, everybody that we know in the Star Trek universe is floating around. Their younger selves are floating around. And I'm like, I just don't know why you would want to do that for your new show, where immediately you have your fervent 50-year-old fan base asking, wait, are we going to get to see this person and that person and this and that and the other thing? I mean, are we gonna are we gonna see a young Kirk? I mean, it, or not? If they're gonna do one story, the ship it'll exist in that time frame. But since we're gonna watch thirteen hours of the same one story, why would you want to cross over with all those people? But what you've done is you've opened up that door. Sure. Or or you've opened up that Medusan ambassador's box of, <laughs> of, of 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 all kinds of colors of the rainbow. You know, it's just like okay. Is there no truth in beauty? Isn't that yeah, the episode? nice one, good, good call. <laughs> you know, I got to be honest. I've been reading uh, the fifty-year uh, mission or whatever the oral history. Now, isn't that um, is that your buddy Mark Altman? Yeah, yeah, it's Mark. Did, Mark and Ed Gross's book. It's a great book. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm only I'm only halfway through it, but I'm I'm loving it. And I'm I mean, you know, now it's funny because years ago Bob Edwards wrote a biography of Edward R. Murrow. And I'm a, right. I'm a huge, you know, broadcast nerd being in Chicago radio. And I've read, had already read like several books on Edward R. Murrow. So by the time I got to Bob Edwards' book, I'm like, yeah, I know this. Yeah, I know this. I, I mean, are you so like immersed in, in Trek lore that like, is it everything you already knew or are you finding new things that you didn't know about? No, there's reading. a lot of stuff that I already knew. And I, I, I guess I also see it as they're taking a particular slant you know, and and they're trying to take a slant that is new. But I still, there's a lot of stuff I did know. There's a few interesting nuggets in there that I was like, oh, that's interesting. But uh, again, uh, I liked the way it was presented. There was a book that came out a couple years ago called I Want My MTV that was uh, organized much the same way. It was an oral history. It's, It's one of my favorite books I've read in the last 10 years. Agreed. Saturday Night Live, too. Tom Shales and his co-writer did an excellent uh, Saturday Night Live oral history in the same way. Yeah, it's the same. And I love that. I mean, it's the best oh, yeah. it, best bathroom reading ever. <laughs> you know, you can just sit there and it's great for bite-sized morsels. You can dig in for a couple of pages or, you know, spend 45 minutes or, you know, an hour in there reading. <laughs> You're 100% right. That's very funny. I'm right now at... Uh, the uh, after the motion picture, the 79 movie came out. So that's right. why I'm in the book. And I pre-ordered the second book because I'm, I'm interested in the whole thing. You know, and I, and I read, there was a great Deep Space Nine trade paperback that really kind of looked at every episode and gave a lot of good background stuff, and certainly Inside Star Trek back in the day. I think those are the ones that I mostly read. Wasn't it Inside yeah, Star Trek? Yeah, I'll tell you, if you want to read an incredible book, read the book about the making of Star Trek, the motion picture that came out last year. Oh, okay. It is it is the greatest. It was actually written by a journalist who was hired by Cinefantastique to cover the production 
before the movie was finished. And it was going to be an article in Cinefantastique, like a 100-page article. It was never published. And Lucas Kendall from Film Score Monthly and my friend Taylor White from Creature Features here published it. And uh, it is, I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on the name of the book, but it's an incredible, uh, it's just an incredible book about the making of Star Trek Motion Picture. And what's really interesting is back then they interviewed all the cast. So Star Trek was a failed TV series that had been in syndication and then they got to make a movie. But people forget from the time Star Trek went off the air with Turnabout Intruder in 69, it was only 10 years until Star Trek The Motion Picture came out. So in the intervening 10 years, you had the animated series. Yep. You had Star Trek going into syndication. You had the first Star Trek convention in 1972. Then there was the Planet of the Titans movie that was going to get made. There was the Star Trek Phase Two television series. So the actors, they were not part of the franchise as we know it today. So when they go back and they interview Shatner, there's a great moment in the book where, in this book, where Shatner talks about he looked to Sean Connery and how Sean Connery played James Bond and always kept James Bond grounded in reality. And Shatner talked about that's how he looked at how he's going to play Kirk. Interesting. Is that if Sean Connery can give James Bond this larger-than-life character a humanity and a reality, that's who he would look to. And I had never read that before. And when you go back and you read in this motion, the book on the making of the motion picture, um, it, it, it's incredible. It's like a, it's, it, the book is like 500 pages long. Or wow. something. It's all text. And again, it's a long oral history, but people, they, he keeps cutting back and forth between interviews, but Sometimes the interview segments last two and three pages. So it's that's truly cool. great, great stuff. Oh, that's excellent, man. No, I, I, I would love to read that. I'm, I'm really enjoying <clears throat> the oral history now as well, like I said. Um, and I'm looking forward to the, the next part. I wonder again with Star Trek Discovery, you know, yeah, are we going to, are we going to see number one? Are we going to see Pike? Like you said, I mean, you know, some of these other, some of these other potential characters, because uh, reading the oral history and everything, I just even appreciated some of the ideas that didn't happen, you know, because they decided to go with Shatner instead of sticking with Jeffrey Hunter and the things that Desilu and NBC didn't like about the show versus what Roddenberry wanted to do. Also, we didn't talk about it because I don't think it was out when we uh, talked last summer, um, that Shatner documentary, Trouble on the Bridge. Right. And, you know, he was doing, what do you that, think of that? He was doing that concurrently to us doing Next Generation, the Next Generation documentaries. So we were covering the same material in a much more earnest fashion because it was being officially released. And I was aware of a lot of the stories that uh, Shatner was covering. But, and I, and I thought, you know, Gates McFadden said something to me when I interviewed her. First of all, a, a lovely lady. Uh, Big fan. Her <laughs> own theater here. She's, she's terrific. And she said to me, she said, you know, I could talk, I could tell a lot of stories about Gene or uh, Leonard Mazelis, who she really hated, who was Gene's lawyer, or some of the other people that were working on the show. And she said, you know, but those were guys that came, they were World War II veterans. They came out of a different era. And the 80s, I mean, we had a counselor on the bridge, for God's sake. Uh, yes. and, and she thought, why, why tell stories that might paint them in a less than flattering light when they've given so much to so many people over the years. And she, she made a good point. She said, you know, 
working in the creative fields, there's a lot of questionable behavior that goes on from everybody. And, and people are very passionate about what they do and why, why, uh, uh, smirch people's reputations when after all, they're just people. And if they're, if the work that they create lives longer than they do, and if it touches so many people, isn't the work more important? And yeah, I, I was you, like, man. yeah, you know what? You might be right about that. Yeah, I understand. When you but said I that, did uh, like, I mean, Chaos on the Bridge did a pretty good job. I just felt like it was, it was a lot of it was accurate, but it was muckraking for muckraking's sake. And I, yeah, it was, I was pretty like, mean spirited. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, was I mean, and 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 I was like, why? Sure, you can be you can be that way, but why? I mean, look, make it you you could take literally any movie that was made, any movie. And you could do a, a expose about it and paint everybody in a not so flattering light because the idea of making movies at all, you need, you need balls of steel to even attempt it. And you need to be egomaniacal and you need to be larger than life. And you need to throw temper tantrums and sometimes cry your eyes out and scream and yell and, it's it's the art of creation and and it's never easy. And I've worked on a lot of movies, both big and small, and I've seen a, on every different capacity, in every different capacity. And I've seen a lot of behavior that I wouldn't say is the best. But that's only at one. That's only for one day or two days, and then you move on, and then people are buddy buddy again, and you're all friends. And at the end of the day, what really matters is the work. You've always got to look toward the work. Was it hard to make? Yes, it was. Was somebody a douche? Probably. But at the end of the day, if the, if the work, Alfred Hitchcock made 53 feature films in his career. Mm-hmm. Some of the great movies ever made, whether it's Vertigo or Rear Window or To Catch a Thief or Strangers on a Train or North by Northwest or Psycho or whatever. And Alfred Hitchcock was kind of a weird dude. But yep. at the end of the day, we celebrate his legacy. Nobody cares that he was celibate for 50 years. Nobody really cares where he could get a dinner reservation or his weird obsession with blondes that he could never have. People care about his movies as well. They should, you know, I understand. And I, yeah, go on. He's dead. His movies are still here. And, and we're all crazy. I mean, you know, we all do things every day that we, we all go to the bathroom. Do I want people watching me in the bathroom? No, I do it every day. You know, I don't even want people to know that I do those things. But but would I want people to write about it? No, I want people to concentrate on the movies that I make. You know, and, and or the, the, the TV shows that I'm on or the whatever it is. Doing this podcast, I would hope people would get something, glean something useful from it. And oh, I think it's we we've gotten to this point in our lives in our in our in our culture and in our society where reality television has made it so We'd rather watch the worst in people. And I think that we need to turn our civilization around and once again, go back and look at Kennedy's speech, his 18-minute speech where he says, we will go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they're easy, but because they are hard. Yeah. You know, where, that old adage, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, the going is tough, man. And I would rather see our civilization celebrate our accomplishments and 
if somebody falls down, you pick them up and you bring them with you to the finish line. And I think that's what Star Trek was all about, and we've really lost that. We'd rather scream and yell at each other and bitch and moan and complain and, and, and watch horrible reality television and watch the latest plastic surgery disaster and from the confines of our bed with our beautiful comforters or duvets wrapped around us, marvel at other people's misfortunes and, and, and point and snicker. I'd rather see us, you know, I'd rather see people create and dream and, and move forward and challenge themselves and, and make things happen, create things that didn't exist and, and do things that are awesome and go places they've never been, you know, and, and, and do things they, they can scarcely dream of because that's a choice. You know, you, you make a choice. It's like the end of, I love Shawshank Redemption, but it's what, it's what Red says, you know, get busy living or get busy dying. And he decides to get on that bus and go to Zaywatanao and find his friend Andy and get the hell out of Dodge. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. And you can choose to do that or not. And to me, I grew up in a world where Captain Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise told me that when you have the loyalty of your crew and you have the loyalty and devotion of your best friends, you can go and do anything and accomplish anything. And we, we have forgotten that. And we've got to get back to doing it because we are amazing people. And if we put our minds to it, we can do whatever it is we, we, we choose to mm-hmm. rather than arguing about Marvel and DC movies on the internet. Although I like doing that too. <laughs> I hear your podcast, man. It's true. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You're speaking nice right now, but I've heard you on Collider. Absolutely, man. No, I'm teasing. It's, are you enjoying podcasting? What's that? I, I know you've been – don't get me wrong. You're giving lofty ideas, but I'm just asking, are you enjoying podcasting on Collider? Well, I do. You know, we do that shows on podcasts, and then we do – it's also on video on YouTube. I do. I, mm-hmm. I, I like it a lot, and I, I, I'll tell you, one of, the, one of the things I like most about it is I get letters, and people contact me from all over the world. I got – this kid from Pakistan contacted me. And he, he heard me crack that I wanted to sell my comic book collection, and he sent me a list. He's like, look, there aren't any comic book stores in Pakistan, and if you want to get rid of these comics, and he sent me a list of like 20, 20 wow. titles. He goes, I'll buy them from you. Oh, that's and, right. <laughs> and I told him, I said, man, I'd have to go through my long boxes and dig them out. But there's a lot of people. I mean, I get, I get letters, and people contact me from all of I've got. I've been giving out love advice to kids who <laughs> write me from – you know, some kid writes me from Florida and talks about how he can't talk to girls. And I'm like, well, here's what you got to do, dude. And, and it's, it's such a weird, like people look up to you. And, and the one thing that people have said to me, they're like, you know, unlike Suicide Squad, which I really went, went off on, that I try and find something cogent to say, something worthwhile to say about things, even if I don't like them. And people have said to me, you know, I really appreciate that about you. And I'm like, well, that's because you haven't heard me go off about how much I hated Star Trek Into Darkness but that's neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, so it's been, it's been a lot of fun and I'm, I'm surprised. It's really weird when you do something once a week that a hundred thousand people watch I hear and that. you know, you get all this, but I do feel a responsibility that I, you know, I'd like to, it's great cause I can call my mom and I'm like, Hey mom, you know, uh, all those hours I spent reading comics and going to and from the comic book store. I, I feel now as a middle-aged man pushing 50, that I'm now bequeathing all of this knowledge to the young people of America. 
My mom listens, and she just—I awesome. can, she—I can feel her shaking her head. And she's like, "God help them, God <laughs> help them." So, yeah, that's hilarious. Did you do any? Uh, you said you missed some of your panels in San Diego. Did you? Which which ones did you end up on? And also, are they? Did they videotape them? Well, we did. Of course, this was the fifteenth anniversary of our famous Starship Smackdown. Oh yeah. yes, I was there last year. Go on. Yes, and if you if you uh, uh, we did it wasn't that good this year. We're getting a little away from the core. I mean, if we just concentrated on which starship could beat up which starship, <laughs> we need to get back to the basics, kind of like America. Let's get back to the basics of Starship SmackDown. But it's really interesting. Like, if anybody, if any of your listeners want to go, Neil deGrasse Tyson was there a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, NPR did a story. NPR, if you Google NPR, one starship to rule them all, there was an NPR story on Starship SmackDown. It's it's just nuts. But people still come watch. Again, middle-aged guys and girls talk about whether the Imperial Star Destroyer could actually defeat the Starship Enterprise. And every year we keep doing it, and they keep asking us back. I don't understand. Well, that's a good sign. That's all right, man. That's funny. I also I went to the uh, panel you guys did last year when you were talking about I think the best years of movies, and you were talking about the '80s movies in particular. Yeah, I mean, no, we were doing it every year. Last year was '85. This year was '86. I missed that. Oh, there you go. Yeah, '86. I wanted to talk about Manhunter. You know, uh, Michael my buddy William Peterson. Book. I wanted to talk about Nine and a Half Weeks. <laughs> sure. Which I can't believe came out 30 years ago. That's insane. Oh, dude, I, I hear you. What did I just see that was from 1970s? Oh, God, it was uh, an episode of All in the Family where Billy Crystal was a guest star. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, wow. he's 40 years old. It was when, like his, the, his character was best friends with uh, Mike, Rob Reiner, and was getting oh, married yeah. at their house. And I remember the episode. And I'm like, oh, my God, that was 40 years ago. And I, of course, remember watching it live. Uh, well, can you believe <laughs> it next year, uh, 2017, is the 40th anniversary of Star Wars? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> are you are you still psyched for Rogue One? One thing I learned when I when I listen because I mostly listen rather than watch the Collider show. Man, you guys are like because you're so knowledgeable and stuff. Like the guy whoever went to see all the Justice League behind the scenes stuff. It's like, dude, stop! I I don't want to know this much about the movie. I want to see the goddamn thing. I know. And. Uh, and I wonder if uh, your pre-knowledge of Rogue One, are you excited for it or are you jaded? You know, I, I, I look, I, I love I love the Star Wars universe. I mean, I saw Empire Strikes Back 26 times in the theater first run nice. in Seattle. I love Star Wars and Empire. Um, although I will say Return of the Jedi is still the single most disappointing cinema-going experience I've ever had in my life. I I, 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 couldn't, I I honestly couldn't believe I thought that I was going to see the Gone with the Wind of science fiction films, a film that was going to uh, and it, it was just pedestrian. It was a rehash, and it was it, it was this cutesy weird. I don't know, but yeah. Rogue One looks really really intriguing to me, and I hope that it is. I hope it's like a great World War II spy thriller set in the Star Wars universe. You know, sure. Um, Sure. It looks that way. I think the idea that an, another director, that Tony Gilroy came in and helped the director the way he did on Godzilla, it's really weird. I mean, these, these tentpole properties where you look at Marvel, 
and Kevin Feige, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is doing everything right. And then you see the Star Wars universe, uh, Rogue One, they bring in another director. I mean, God forbid you put war in your Star Wars movie. Um, I hope it's good. You know, I mean, Star Wars Rogue One should not be a, a, a fun, mirth-filled romp to the galaxy. I mean, they're stealing the plans for the Death Star. Darth Vader's in it, uh, which I can't wait for. And all these characters, I would assume, die because you never see them again. So they steal the plans. I mean, as Mon Mothma said about the Death Star 2, Mon Mothma said, you know, many dolphins died to bring us this information. I would assume that many people died to bring the information of Death Star 1. So it, it, it can't be a, uh, a fun romp through the galaxy. But it, what I've seen of it, it looks amazing. I can't wait. Yeah. You're killing me. That's awesome. And, and no, I, <laughs> I agree with you. And I do hope that it is, you know, a, a movie of weight as much as, you know, hey, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, can't, uh, I think it's going to be, look, the fact that they're even doing it, it to me, the idea of what it's about, I mean, we're going to see how they stole the wet plans for the first Death Star. Yeah, that idea yeah. is such a great idea. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, end, it has to end with the, the rebel blockade runner, the Tangent Four, leaving with Princess Leia and the plans aboard it, and the Star Destroyer in hot pursuit. That's how the movie's got to end. And, uh, no, I would agree. I, I can't wait. I cannot wait. You know what's interesting, though? It's And you say it, and you're right. In the, Well, you you kind of didn't say it, and, and and also I agree with you, because Richard uh, Marquardt, wasn't, wasn't he the uh, director of the third? Of Jedi. Of Jedi, yeah. Um, I was going to say, we're seeing, um, and especially with the, with the tepid response or mediocre response to Suicide Squad, we're seeing a lot of these superhero films. Obviously, they're producer-driven. The Marvel films are also producer-driven, but as you say, they seem to get it right. It, you know, um, I would say the Bond films, for the most, although, you know, the Timothy Dalton, I think, uh, they, well, there's been a couple clunkers. I'll even say a couple of even uh, Pierce Brosnan's movies, obviously. But it's it's weird because it's not something new that these films are producer-driven because we've got the examples of Star Wars and Bond before that. I, I, yeah. I But it's interesting that, yeah, you know, I mean, like you said, I agree that in the case of DC, maybe there's too many cooks. But it is weird, and I read that Hollywood Reporter article specifically about Suicide Squad, and that Warner's and even uh, to a degree Marvel will sometimes reach out to these directors that aren't used to making big tentpole movies and are no, kind and of I in think, over their head. Yeah, I think I think Marvel has a great. Kevin Feige knows that motion pictures are director driven, and what he does is if you look at. At, at the Russo brothers who did the Captain America movies and are now doing Infinity War. Right. And if you look at people like James Gunn or Peyton Reed who did Ant-Man, yes. he's going out and he's picking uh, maybe not obvious choices. And these directors, they know what they're getting into. They're, they're working synergistically with Marvel Studios that are working for a bigger picture. And they come in and the Russo brothers get to put their imprimatur on the Captain America movies, James Gunn certainly was what drove Guardians of the Galaxy 1, and I would assume Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy 2. I mean, these are auteurist movies that are yet being made under the auspices of Marvel Studios. So they have really figured out a way to work with strong directors that have strong visions, yet make those visions work within their larger framework of the universe that they're trying to build on. 
And, and I think that's very unique. And I think that speaks to Kevin Feige and his scheme. And it speaks to the, the, I mean, the ballsy uh, director's choices that they're making. And to me, Marvel Studios is a perfect example of how a motion picture studio in the modern age that is beholden to shareholders, that is expecting to drive profits. I mean, you know, it's, it's really ridiculous to assume that every movie that comes out should make a billion dollars, but that's new. That's the new normal. And Marvel studios keeps living up to that. I mean, whether they make 700,000 or 700 million or a billion, they're still, they're still constantly hitting movies. I mean, they're doing different genres. Ant-Man was a heist movie. They got captain or they got uh, Dr. Strange coming out in November, which is a crazy, weird horror mystical thing. Let's see how that works. And then they got Thor Ragnarok, which is a buddy road movie with Hulk and Thor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're doing a tremendous job because there's a synergy between the creative entities and the corporate entities that is working. The thing is, Warner Brothers is too fractured and they've got a committee on one side and then they have these directors on the other side. And the committee is made up of people that are not filmmakers. They're studio executives, which are different. Ivy League. I mean, Kevin Sujahara, who's running Warner Brothers now, mm-hmm. he's a good businessman, but he came out of, he ran their, their amusement park division. Mm-hmm. He did not come out of film production, and yet he's in charge of the studio. So right. he's not a nuts and bolts studio guy. He, he, I mean, he's not a nuts and bolts producing, uh, production guy. Right. Yeah, film guy. Yeah. So. No, I know. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I, it's funny. I worked at Warner Brothers. My first real job in the industry was I worked for the senior vice president of production, Bill Young, who was in charge of the actual physical production of all the movies that Warner Brothers made. And it was in a time, it was in the 89, 90s, so it was a long time ago, quarter of a century okay. ago. But yeah. still, movie making hasn't changed. And I was there the entire time Bonfire of the Vanities was being produced. So I saw a runaway production that went insane. I, sure. I saw it happen at the studio level okay. and I watched how movies were made like this. And, you know, albeit I was very young, I was in my early twenties, but I was afforded an opportunity to work at the very highest level of a studio, you know, for the boss. Okay. And I watched what happened and how things went down. And there is a, uh, the problem is there is a huge disconnect between people that didn't come out of physical production because all the executives at Warner brothers that work, the vice presidents that were not part of physical production, they're all Ivy League educated business school people. And, you know, corporate demands that they hire MBAs from Ivy League schools. Now, those aren't necessarily the best people to start calling the shots on what movies get made because those people are answering to marketing reports and trends and what they're being told. Uh, rather than going from their gut because there's too much money involved and too much risk. And anytime somebody takes a risk, uh, they could fall on their face and lose their job and, and never work again. But unfortunately, nobody in Hollywood ever got rich following a trend. You set trends. You know, Star Wars was a, a beleaguered production, but it was something that came out of the ether. Alan Ladd believed in George Lucas who George Lucas made American Graffiti and THX 1138. Who knew yep. that he could make Star Wars? And the sure. constant, in this day and age, nobody would ever hire him. 
nobody would ever make Star Wars. People would say, oh, George Lucas made American Graffiti. Let's hire him to do Jurassic World. You know, (laughs) oh, okay. Nobody would bet on his new cockamamie, crazy Flash Gordon retro Star Wars thing. No one would do that. So... That's fantastic. Do you have anything coming up uh, directing-wise? You know, I, I don't have anything coming up directing-wise. I am editing. Uh, I've had a pretty good year this year for stuff I had come out. I I edited a low-budget B time travel thriller called Paradox that's on uh, Netflix. It's dropped on oh, Netflix cool. on, uh, on, uh, in May. So that came out. And you know what? It only has one and a half stars on Netflix, but if you're a John Carpenter fan and you like time travel stories, it's a really low budget movie, but it's it's I promise you you'll have a good time for the eighty five minute running time. All right. It stars Zoe Bell, who was in Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof. Um she kicks ass and it's got a yes. lot of Malik Yoba's in it. Uh and Adam Huss, one of my favorite actors in Hollywood, who's on Power, a TV series Power. And then in June I had the box set. You can now get the box set of all seven seasons of next generation that came out so you can see all my documentaries and in July, a lifetime, <laughs> a lifetime TV movie I edited called, I know where Lizzie is, uh, just debuted. It starts Tracy gold. Uh, and that, that's a little, it's a lifetime movie. What, what, what can I say? That, and, hey man, don't give me, I've got, you know, I've got a couple that are friends. They love Lifetime movies. And, and dude, that, that one that uh, Will Ferrell and, uh, um, what's her face? Uh, and I'm blanking oh, that, right now. Yeah, that was, that was amazing. I'd love yeah. <laughs> And then right now I'm actually working on a movie called Tango Shalom. I'm editing a, a movie called Tango Shalom that, that was, um, it's, it's directed by Gabe Bologna who is the son of actor Joseph Bologna. Oh, my God. Movies, like, blame it on Rio. And my favorite year. My, and and uh, my favorite year, that's right. Oh, I'm a big Which Joe Bologna is one of the fan. inspirations for Free Enterprise. So he directed that, and Tango Shalom is, it's, it's about an Orthodox rabbi who believes he's heard the word of God, and God has told him to learn how to tango to dance, the tango. But unfortunately, he can't touch another woman because he's an Orthodox rabbi and he doesn't know how he's going to achieve this goal. So he goes on a sort of uh, Don Quixote, Sancho Panza, uh, uh, tilting at windmills quest uh, to figure out how is he going to heed the word of God. And he goes to many different religious leaders and it's really a movie about achieving your dreams and also tolerance. And it, it's pretty good. And it was, it was shot on the streets in New York. So it has a lot of great production value. And cool. there's a lot of great, like Lainey Kazan is in it. It was in like big fat Greek wedding. And she was in, I love her. Yeah. Uh, she's the mom in my big fat Greek wedding. Yeah. yeah she absolutely. Was in, uh, John Waters lust in the dust. Yeah. And, and also going back either the detective or Tony Rome, one of the Sinatra, uh, not the detective and I either lady in cement or Tony Rome. One of the Tony mm-hmm. Rome movies, which I love. I mean, they're, ter- yeah, they're like, no. you know, D. Martin, Matt Helm movies, but, you know, Frank Sinatra is a detective. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, um, <laughs> you know, that, that's what I'm working on right now. And then I've, I've been developing a, a, an anthology TV series that uh, has had some interest. And, I, you know, I just keep plugging away. I, um, I'm always looking for something new. You know, in this day and age, you got to 
fight and claw to survive. So I hear you, man. You know, I, I never would have been, I never would have thought that I would be editing a movie about an Orthodox Jewish rabbi that wants to learn tango. <laughs> but, you know, I took the job because I've never cut dance sequences before. And there's really some great dance stuff in it. And the film is actually, it's, it's going to be a good movie. I can see it doing well at festivals and it'll be one of those movies you discover on, um, on TV late at night. Like, not the way that David Fincher said in 20 years, people would discover seven because Gwyneth Paltrow's head is in a box at the end of the movie. But I think this movie is kind of like when people see an Orthodox Jewish rabbi dancing the tango, they might stop and go, oh, all right. This movie could change <laughs> well, my like, life. Maybe like Black Dynamite or something like that, it sounds like, in terms of it being kind of irreverent and, you know. Well, it's, so it's actually need... really earnest. It's, it's, it's a really earnest movie. It's not, it's not oh, like really? a, over, yeah, it's not an over-the-top ethnic comedy. It's actually a sweet movie that oh, wow. well, it, it's really about a, a, a guy. The, the rabbi has a great family life, and, but he is he is troubled by this. You know, he doesn't know what to do. He wants to honor the, the word of God, but and he knows it's kind of crazy. But he has to uh, he has to try and um, try and make it happen. And, and you know, it's just fun. Know, like I I I'm just happy that I really like to edit. You know, and I like to be. I like to make films, and I think if I'm not directing, editing is the next best thing. And, you know, I have another movie coming out. I worked on, um, believe it or not, I shot behind-the-scenes stuff for Leah Thompson, the actress who was in Back to the Future, who played Marty McFly's mom. She is now a TV director, and she made her feature debut uh, on a movie called that her daughter wrote called The Year of Spectacular Men. And I shot all the behind the scenes on that movie. Oh, fun, man. Yeah, so that was cool. It was really, what a delightful woman. And her, she's married, actually, to Howard Deutsch, who directed Pretty in Pink and Some That's Kind of crazy. Wonderful. So, wow. And both of her daughters were were in uh, Year of Spectacular Men. Her daughter, Maddie, wrote it, and she directed it. So that was fun. I don't know when that's coming out, maybe later this year, maybe early Maybe it'll be festivals in 2017, but I worked on that too. So, you know, I kind of had this kind of crazy career where I kind of skip and jump around. And of course, I'm on Collider Heroes every week, and I, I'm, I'm also a, a frequent guest on Comic-Con HQ is a new subscription uh, channel from Lionsgate that's got Comic-Con-related material, and a lot of the Collider people do shows for them, and there's a, a movie show that I've been on a couple of times. So I do now, that too. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've heard about that channel and, and I know that it's still, is it still in the beta stage or? Uh, no, I mean, you can now, you can now, I know Mark Hamill's got a show that they're launching and Nathan. Fillion right. I heard about coach. that. Who else? I'm sorry. Nathan Fillion is, is going to do a show. Oh, oh, that's cool. Uh, that makes sense. Of course he is. <laughs> He's just like Hamill in terms of loving the fan base as much as. Uh, performing and making new, you know, acting stuff. You know, it's kind of cool. I love, I love how Hamill's like that. That's amazing. I mean, he really, yeah, is no, he's like he's one great. of the people. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and I know Philly, and Fillion's like that too. You know, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, so, and, and I think you know the line between fan and professional, uh, or professional fan is is sort of really blurring more now than ever before. Oh, of course. And and you know, as as there, there's so many choices now for entertainment, and everything is so fractured that the kind of money people used to make, I mean, you still can make money if you're on a show like Game of Thrones with a $10 million budget, but 
now we have to eke out a meager living no no matter where we can we can, we can i mean it's interesting that i keep editing you know these low budget movies that that don't pay a lot but you know if i was waiting around for some big payday i wouldn't get to edit these films and i'd much rather have more work out there the more work i can do the more people can look back and judge what i've judge my life as being worthy <laughs> No man, you you hey, I I follow you on Facebook as well and you know, you put in the the horror films that you work on both in front of the camera and behind the camera and I'm glad too uh because we talked about it last year, a lot of your special feature work and it sounds like with the Leah Thompson thing that's continuing because um you know, yeah, you were kind of concerned that with, you know, the DVDs set sales going down that maybe there isn't as much call for special features like there were for that, you know, sweet spot of the uh, 90s in the early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, I think unfortunately, um, I think special features are going the way of the dinosaur. I I I think it's it's turning into something else because studios and even the directors that used to support it have sort of lost interest. Um, and I, it, it's sad, but unfortunately, you know, movies are all kind of made the same way, and I think mm-hmm. now. You know, we live in a world now where where kids today get as much entertainment value watching YouTube videos of other people playing video games and doing video game walkthroughs yeah. as they do watching movies or television shows. And and I think with all of the different kinds of entertainment that exist, um, the place that movies and television used to occupy has been uh, supplanted by other things. So I don't think movies are as magical to the new, the younger generations as they might have been to us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's okay. I think it's an evolutionary thing. I mean, when we were sure. kids, we did not have the the, the level of, of sophistication. I mean, I know that my girlfriend and her daughter, we've been talking about the Uncharted video game series. And I, the first time I played Uncharted 1, um, it was the first time I felt like I was actually playing a movie. Sure. And I think as we move into the virtual space, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I can't wait to see it. I hear you, man. So it's good stuff. Very cool, man. Well, no, hey, keep up the good work. I, I really appreciate the time, and I'm going to let you go because we've been talking for two, but we, I really think we went into some very interesting areas, and uh, but also covered everything I wanted to ask you about. And, uh, you know, hey, I, I don't know what's going to, you know, wh- however things shake out with Axonar, I know you and Alec are very uh, talented guys, and I know the people also uh, behind the whole uh, production. So I'm sure that I hope you're able to, you know, if not get the Axonar movie going, you know, work on some other project that will, you know, fulfill what you guys want to do, at least, you know, in, in, in the basic sense of, of yeah, creating I mean, something. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, you just never know where a career in the entertainment business is going to take you. Sure. Um, you know, if I was like my friend Brian Singer, I could make a giant $200 million movie every two years. That would be great. But on the other hand, I kind of like the freedom to jump around, although it would be nice to have his money. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I do Not going to lie. I'm willing to pour <laughs> myself out to whatever entertainment <laughs> enterprise is going to give me the big dollars. So make it rain, make it rain, make it rain. That's what I say. <laughs> Well, keep up the good work on the Collider thing and, and all these films that you're editing and, and projects you get to direct as well. And, uh, hey, man, no, I'd love to check in with you, in a, you know, when there's something new to talk about. And, uh, yeah, I hope you'll come back. Well, it's always great talking to you, and I really appreciate the time.
Robert Meyer Burnett. So uh, look for Paradox. Sounds like an interesting Netflix movie. Why not? And, uh, man, if you can find Free Enterprise, and it's tough because it is out of print, uh, I was able to snag uh, the deluxe DVD literally right after our conversation because I missed it so much, and I found a used copy on Amazon. And, and, you know, try that in other uh, used uh, DVD locations and stuff because if you haven't seen it, it is a wonderful uh, Star Trek fan film, a great Valentine to us Star Trek fans. William Shatner is amazing in it. Uh, Eric McCormick from Will and Grace is incredibly funny. And uh, also, uh, and I forget his first name, but uh, Weigel, uh, and we talked about it in our last episode. If you haven't heard the first conversation with Rob about Star Trek, uh, really go back to last year, last summer. I think it was June. No, it was, it was, post, it was post San Diego, so it must have either been in late July or in August that uh, we had our first conversation. Really, really fun uh, Star Trek conversations. And um, the two guys who are in Free Enterprise are so funny. Rafer Weigel is the name of uh, the other co-star of that excellent film. Rafer Weigel, Eric McCormick, William Shatner, Free Enterprise from 1999. Excellent movie. And um, again, if you haven't seen Prelude to Axanar, watch that on YouTube. It's amazing. And uh, really uh, appreciate what these guys uh, did uh, from a fan film standpoint. Um, the good news is with the new standards and uh, re- requirements of uh, Star Trek and uh, CBS and Paramount regarding fan films, um, because these are new guidelines, they're not going to you know, give any cease and desist and make people who have already made very good fan films, uh, make them take them down from YouTube. So there's those and... Man, there's an excellent adaptation of a, a Star Trek episode called Mind Sifter. It was a short story that was in the first collection of short stories uh, in paperback uh, from a book called Star Trek The New Voyages. And it's a tremendous original series story uh, involving uh, Kirk having uh, been captured by the Klingons and thrown back uh, with his memory wiped to uh, 1950s Earth. And he's in an insane asylum because he talks about working on a spaceship and everybody thinks he's nuts, and it's uh, a very good combination of original series Star Trek ideas, and uh, the way they shot it reminds me very much of a very good Twilight Zone or Outer Limits from that you know late 50s, early 60s uh, portion of television history. It's, it's just amazing. Uh, it was something that uh, Rob did not make, but there's a lot of really good fan films out there, including Prelude to Axanar, and uh, you know, check them out if you're, if you're a Star Trek fan, and if you haven't already done it, God, what are you waiting for? So uh, it was a fun conversation today, and I hope you enjoyed it on Word Balloon. Uh, It was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. And uh, let's uh, go over some more uh, great uh, Star Trek product from IDW that's available at great rates at InStock Trades. You can get the 100-page spectacular of Star Trek from 2012, 30% off. It's just $5.59. And there are some great short uh, Star Trek stories in there. Um, Let's see. You can also get... Star Trek Khan Ruling in Hell from Scott Tipton and David Tipton. And uh, that book is 30% off, just $12.59. Let me see if they got the John Byrne Star Trek stuff, because that is amazing. John Byrne took um, Star Trek uh, images from the TV show and actually created new stories from them. And uh, so let's see if we can get... uh, Well, there's a Star Trek John Byrne collection... And uh, let's see. Wow, that must be this giant uh, hardcover, and it is, uh, featuring a lot of great stories uh, from Byrne, uh, both writing and, uh, and art, and uh, including things like uh, a great miniseries, Leonard McCoy, Frontier Doctor. Uh, there's a, a great Gary Seven story in there. 
uh, Romulans, Pawns of War, just a few of the things that you can find there. Uh, that collection is 30% off. It's just $34.99. And now let me see if I can find, I think it's called Star Trek New Visions. There they are. Star Trek New Visions trade paperback volume uh, two and three are available uh, from IDW. And they are both uh, at reduced rates, 30% off, just $13.99. And it's great because literally uh, it's uh, stills from the TV show. And uh, Byrne made new stories using, uh, you know, pictures of Shatner and Nimoy and Sulu Takei and uh, Nichelle Nichols and the whole cast and uh, recurring aliens as well. And made these very, very good stories. Uh, I highly recommend the Star Trek New Visions books, among a lot of the other Star Trek product that IDW has been putting out. So good excuse to uh, mention the wonderful work that IDW has been doing with the Star Trek franchise in the last couple of years. And uh, also uh, let you know, too, that it, uh, because it's the 50th anniversary, I'm, I still got a lot of Star Trek to talk about. Um, technically, you know, it's the official anniversary happens in September uh, when the Man Trap originally uh, was aired. In fact, Andy Parks and I got to meet the author of The Man Trap, the first aired episode of Star Trek, George Clayton Johnson, who also co-wrote Logan's Run and wrote great Twilight Zone episodes like Kick the Can and uh, A Game of Pool, the great Jonathan Winters, Jack Klugman Twilight Zone episode that you might remember. Um, this guy was amazing. He wrote the original story that became Ocean's Eleven, the Rat Pack version of Ocean's Eleven, was based on a George Clayton Johnson uh, story. Uh, this guy was amazing. And in fact, uh, they had a wonderful memorial tribute to him this year at San Diego Comic-Con. All that said, I'm going to be talking a lot more about Star Trek and especially IDW's Star Trek product in uh, in the weeks ahead. So uh, keep listening to Word Balloon. I know I make, sometimes I make promises and they don't happen right around the time that I say. But I'm going to do my damnedest because uh, I'm, I'm telling you, I love what IDW has been doing with the Star Trek license. And I think they do an excellent job. So all that said, uh, check out uh, more great product from InStockTrades.com. We talk about them every week because they're a great store and they deserve your business. Go to InStockTrades.com. John Sutcher saying thanks again for listening to Word Balloon today. Um, again, news continues to drop immediately. And as such, I've got a conversation if uh, all goes as planned uh, with uh, film critic Matt Singer. Uh, about, uh, you know, the summer movies that have been happening, the superhero movies. We kind of review those. It's been a while since we've talked to Matt. Uh, Matt is also a participant in the new Star Wars uh, documentary about the prequel films, and it seems like it's the response to the People versus George Lucas documentary where uh, now the prequels are finally, you know, the, the defenders of the prequels are standing up and demanding to be heard. It sounds very funny. And I uh, was watching the trailer. I already had the conversation planned with Matt. And it's like, wait a minute, Matt's in this movie. So I'm going to have to ask him about his participation, along with talking about Suicide Squad, like we talked about with Rob and Star Trek, certainly the other superhero movies that we've had this year, and, uh, and just uh, taking the temperature of what's been going on in uh, the superhero film genre and the geek film genre in general. So looking forward to that conversation with Matt. I'm going to record it tonight and uh, likely put it out uh, for you uh, on Friday. If not Friday, then probably Saturday. Definitely the next episode of Word Balloon. So keep your eyes peeled. Thanks a lot for listening. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2016.